Some assembly required. Some assembly required, a neo-surrealist forsaking a habit for Lent. Chapter 1 As I've told you before, I like what I read, the editor said. Then what? Trey asked. It's not the ideas. I like the ideas. Many of them are quite good. Some are even compelling. The problem is with the form. How do you mean? What is wrong with the form? Well, simply put, you have one. It would be better if you didn't. Trey pondered his suggestion. He rose from across the desk, tapped the corner of an adjacent filing cabinet, and glanced through the vertical Venetian blinds. Benny clutched his briefcase tightly as he checked his wristwatch and calculated the inevitability that he would be late. To evade the crowd, he navigated a path by jaywalking across two boulevards, giving him a shortcut through an alley. The back entrance of his office building was, firm, was finally in view. Beyond the range of his view, by precisely 180 degrees, was a knife pointed to the small of his back. No problems, asshole, the assailant muttered. Just the wallet. Benny froze in his tracks. He was shaking, but the assailant didn't notice. What's your problem? The assailant barked through gritted teeth. If I slice and dice you, man, I still get the wallet. Okay, I keep it in my coat pocket. Benny said. He reached inside his suit coat, turned, and fired three bullets into the heart of his attacker. The alleged mugger, a black teenager with a juvenile record of criminal activity, was dead before paramedics arrived on the scene. Jordan Andrews, age 17, was found in an alley off 12th Avenue. Adjacent to his body was a knife which police have matched for his fingerprints. His killer remains in custody, but Dorman's lawyer insists that the accountant's release is merely a formality. Benny has cooperated fully with the police investigation, the lawyer said. In fact, Benny's account has been totally corroborated by the physical evidence at the crime scene. Of course, the public protestations of a lawyer could not possibly answer the critical questions evolving from Benny's blasts. Was Benny A. The victim of a crime B. Acting in self-defense. C. Terrified and frightened by his circumstances. D. Having an unusual but lucky day. E. Relieved at finally living out his fantasy. F. The next tabloid media multi-thousandaire. G. A racist who personifies a backward society. H. A compelling argument for gun control. I. A compelling argument against gun control. J. Not particularly compelling in any regard. K. Incapable of being convicted by any jury. L. Another trend-setting victim-killer avatar. M. Himself a victim of temporary insanity. N. Completely controlled by media violence. O. A fool who should have parted with his wallet. P. Partially A, B, 
and L, but not C. Q, solely D, E, and K, but calling himself M. R, undeniably not H, I, or J, but possibly N. S, ironically, A, D, F, K, L, and O. T, only A, and O, O, and did I mention O? U, both G and K, leaving society with answer C. V, a familiar combination of Q, R, and F. W, just Benny to those who know him. X, all of the above. Y, none of the above. And Z, both X and Y? If you selected Z, then you have answered correctly. If you selected anything other than Z, then you know more about this case than empirical observation indicates you should. Come on, come on, tell us what you know, and more importantly, how you know it, the detective queried. She burst into tears. Mrs. Anderson, the detective said with a deliberate pace, no one, particularly not the media, was aware of the assassin's one-way plane ticket home. No one. He waited for her to blow her nose and dry her eyes. And yet you, you come in here with seemingly innocent questions about how she planned to dispose of the murder weapon because inexplicably you knew she was planning to fly off to Freeport. I, n I never said anything about his, her, her destination, Mrs. Anderson said. I just assume, let me assume a few things for you, ma'am, he interrupted. I assume you didn't come here because of your indefatigable nose for the gossip. I assume you aren't some psychic who heard about her plane ticket from the whispering of the wind. She sat motionless, her face contorted in confusion and disbelief. I'll draw some conclusions of my own, the detective continued. I'm guessing that you used more than common sense to decipher the fact that she didn't take the assault rifle with her from New Mexico. I'm guessing that you could tell why our efforts to trace this weapon to a dealer here won't be fruitful. I'm guessing you know all about the plastic explosives and tear gas. Explosives? she asked, snapping back to attention. Go ahead and call your lawyer, Fruitcake, he said. You're going to need his advice. First, first, gather all the spices together particularly whole cloves, cinnamon, and ginger. While none, except nutmeg, which is optional, should be pre-ground, it will be necessary to crush the pieces into smaller and softer bits. A pestle would be ideal for this task. Second, mix the ground spices with any others in a shallow metal cup. If you intend to add garlic, do so sparingly, and only after the other ingredients have been independently combined. Third, Saturate the resonant contents of the cup with one of the solvents. Wine, preferably a white grape or port, brandy, or grain alcohol. Completely saturate the spice mix, but stop after a thin layer of liquid rises above the saturated solids. Fourth, stir as needed. It should not be necessary to stir in the liquid prior to this point, since the spices would readily absorb any solvent. However, Stirring before the steam bath will help ensure that all elements are exposed equally to the heat. Fifth, steam bath. 
Suspend the shallow metal cup on a strainer at the top of a large pot of boiling water. Make sure the cup remains in contact with the water surface, but not submerged. The goal is to retain a soft, damp texture to the contents without direct water dilution. The steam bath will dry off the alcohol without drying up the spices. Note that the process may take several minutes. If it is necessary to add water to the pot, boil the water first in a separate container so the temperature of the boiling water does not drop significantly during the duration of the steam bath. Although not harmful, swallowing this product is not necessary to enjoy the benefits of flavor, scent, and caffeine-based energy boost. Another helpful hint. Although this product is totally unrelated to chewing tobacco, dip, or snuff, it can be used in a similar manner. As a consequence, the consumer should be aware of society's often negative reaction to the accompanying spitting and dip removal. Both of these activities are obviously aesthetically displeasing. Tell me about it, Claire said, dropping her fork into her salad. It gets worse, Nicole continued. Then he actually spilled the cup on my parents' carpet, Claire gasped. I don't think the tobacco smell is coming out. More than just tobacco, Claire said. It's spit, too. For me, she replied, the smell matters more than anything else. Since I quit smoking a couple years ago, I guess uh, two and a half, I just can't take the smell. Did you take one of those hardcore aversion courses or something? Nope, cold turkey. Still, I guess aversion was part of the trade-off from turning things around. I'm glad we had reservations then, and we didn't have to take first available seating, Claire said. Well, it's not like I wretch at the sight of smoke. No, but... But I'd I'd rather avoid disgusting things, Claire nodded. Plus, and this is just between you and me, chum, I, I feel strongly about these... Nicole looked to the ceiling to locate her words. Olfactory aesthetics that... It might be enough to transform boyfriend into has-been. No, Claire said, nearly choking. I don't want to worry about nauseating habits for the rest of my life. Nikkei, tisk tisk. you were never that serious, and you don't seem so now. No, Nicole said, but maybe Carl's rough edges explain why I haven't been more serious. Claire motioned a passing waiter. How may I help you? he asked. I'm going to need a cup of coffee, she said. Make it black, but I'll leave a small cup of milk with it. Should I refill your cup, ma'am? He asked of Nicole. Yes. Decaffeinated? Thanks. So which one bothers you more? Claire asked. Chewing tobacco or cigarette smoke? Well, with Carl, the answer is obvious because he doesn't smoke. I guess I'm glad he doesn't smoke. The smoke is worse? By a mile. Unless, in my case, you're kissing the Big Dipper, it's easier to avoid. I feel like smoke seeks me out, follows me around, sets up a condo in my clothes. No doubt about it, Claire said. I have to dry clean the weekend wardrobe whenever we go clubbing. Nicole lowered her voice, as if she was worried about offending an eavesdropper. It's worse at restaurants. You think? Oh, there's not as much smoke in the air, Nicole whispered. Let's face it, though. You don't go to a bar to eat. People here are eating. Like it or not, a lot of people see a cigarette as one of the courses served with dinner. Maybe I enjoy food too much. Look at me and cancel that maybe. 
Even when I smoked, I didn't like how it altered the tasting process. You felt that way while you were, so to speak, a smoker? Claire asked. In many ways, that paradox led me to quit, Nicole answered. One day, sitting at a restaurant in the waiting room, a really crude thought occurred to me. Can you handle it? How crude? Nicole hushed her voice again. Just tell me if I should stop. Like that ever works, Claire said, revealing a victim's grin. I began to think about examples of odors that are, one, repellent to many people, two, potentially dangerous if inhaled too directly, and three, a mixture of involuntary and voluntary, Nicole said. You know, someone addicted to tobacco has to smoke, but most have significant control over where and when. The press has just gone wild lately with secondhand smoke studies, and let's face it, other people's exhaled smoke is not an ideal breathing environment, even for another smoker. And the crude part? Nicole silently looked at nearby tables while she paused for the waiter to leave. I don't know how to put this. I was just struck by the comparison between secondhand smoke and... and... again, Nicole gazed to the restaurant's light fixtures. Flatulence. Are you saying what I think you're saying? Claire asked, embarrassed more by her hazy comprehension of Nicole's terms than of the concept. Think about it. You have a smell that is created by a person and it bothers everyone else more than him. No matter what a doctor might say, neither odor could be considered healthy by any means. And even though we all do it, and we do, girlfriend, I must be embarrassing you because you are definitely blushing, some people have the ability to... Her voice dropped so low that Claire had to read her lips. Fart. Claire gasped and looked around the restaurant. It's true, Nicole replied. I dated a guy in high school who, briefly mind you, who could do it on purpose. He occasionally did it just to, I don't know, to prove a point. You always do this to me, Claire said. First you bring up something offensive, then you tell me to stop you before you go too far, but how can I? I'd love to stop and tell you that you're way off in the stratosphere on this one if only I knew what you were talking about. Look, it's just hypothetical. Say, for example, that a large group of people were unified behind their right to openly, you know, I know, in public, whenever they felt like it, and especially on airplanes and in restaurants, they would just share their stink with the world. Furthermore, they use legal arguments to block criticism of them. Much like an addict, they argue, they cannot help the natural course of digestion, etc., etc. It's not dangerous like secondhand smoke is, though, Claire said, shaking her head. I can't believe I'm making such an observation. Decadent, isn't it? Claire laughed. I don't know whether flatulence is dangerous or not, Nicole replied. In large quantities, I bet it is. Either way, do you think a restaurant like this would give those people a special section? Or tell them to get out and never come back. Well, guess the second one? I'm not even factoring in the health department into this. Medical proof or not, a restaurant with a gas-passing guest list isn't likely to breeze through any inspections. You just thought of this while you were waiting first available one night? Yes, I think I peer-pressured myself out of smoking for fear of offending people. You're one incredible woman, Nikkei. Carl's gonna be crushed to lose you. Don't laugh, Nicole said, and hush-hush about Carl. My mind's not made up about the Big Dipper just yet. 
Why don't you just whip him into shape by telling him this story of yours? Only add to it that you associate his chewing tobacco with, Claire whispered, fart breath. You're awful. I know, I know. You can't tell me you haven't been offended in a you smelt it, you dealt it way, Nicole said. Well, there was this one time. Oh, do tell. I'm not uppity, really, granted. I was at work, and there were three or four of us in this elevator going up to the 30s. I was working on 34 then, and the others were going up even higher. Same job, right? Nicole asked. Yes. One of the guys in the elevator was a suit. I thought he might be one of our department heads, or even a VP from another company. Well, he leans over, and lots lights one up right in the elevator. I gather he offended you? It was, it was as much the principle of the thing as anything else. He ticked me off as if, like a bigwig or something... He decided his shit didn't stink. You know what I mean? Been there, done that. Yeah, so I told him off between 24 and 34. He couldn't get a word in edgewise before I got off. My God, Claire, what did you say? I don't remember really. I said something about him being rude and inconsiderate, and then I told him that he should have he should have held back till he could get to the bathroom. Or at least his office, Nicole interrupted. Right. Instead, he stunk the rest of us right out of that tiny elevator. What did he say? What could he say? Claire queried. Did you tell him it was breaking the law? I didn't have to. I just embarrassed him. What are you doing Friday night? Nicole asked. I don't know. Why? I got to talk to Carl about this weekend. The job's all yours, Nicole said. Oh, no. I'm not cleaning up your messes. Be a chum, please. Chapter 2 While you were out, Teresa M. called. Just kidding. Sorry, Dan T. Trixie froze in her tracks as Joe rolled over toward her in bed. Although she couldn't be sure the noise from the kitchen wasn't a sign of danger, Trixie's desire to sneak out of the bedroom was more powerful than any fear of such danger. Unwilling, or perhaps unable to pretend she was asleep, Trixie just sat motionless by the pillow and waited a few seconds. Once Joe resumed steady breathing pattern, she walked to the far corner and slid to the floor. Her list of priorities this morning was short and flexible. One, get a drink of water. Two, urinate. Three, locate Hester. Four, investigate the strange noises coming from the kitchen. She decided to pursue options three and four first. The order would all depend upon Hester. How easily she could locate him would depend on whether he wanted to be found. Hester, the source of the noises that awoke her, was crouched below the kitchen table. His first attempt to pilfer the pantry was botched. He was wise to believe that his greatest chance for success would come from working alone and undiscovered. From the shadow of the table legs, Hester squinted at Trixie as she bumbled into the kitchen. Incapable of being totally discreet, Trixie bounced to every corner of the room. In an act of desperation as much as aggravation, Hester poised and pounced her on her final pass. He grabbed her by the waist and pulled her down. Without even a yelp, Trixie turned on Hester, bit his ear, and threw him to the tile. They were at each other's throats before they remembered the consequences of waking up Joe. Trixie stood up and straightened herself. Heather, motioning for her to sit, still, tiptoed down the hall, and peered into the bedroom. Joe was snoring. Hester's plan was simple. Trixie would watch the hallway and alert him, quietly alert him, of any movement from Joe. 
Hester would climb onto the counter and resume the break-in he had started nearly an hour earlier. Mindful of how well his plan had been executed thus far, Trixie agreed without comment. After all, she hadn't even detected his activities until he pulled the box out of the cabinet and clumsily dropped it onto the counter. Connie would be back from church any minute. The sun was now high enough to shine through the bedroom curtains. Anyway, Joe couldn't afford to sleep through his wife's return without getting Trixie up and outside. Her absence from the bed would be noticeable soon enough. September 3rd. On evening walks when I was in college, the sense that I was at home remained much stronger. Even traveling through the heart of an empty campus after midnight, protected only by the occasional blue emergency telephone, I never felt threatened. I now live in a city with less than 50,000 people residing in it. It's a small number. Statistics show that the average neighborhood here should be a far less violent place than a college campus. Nevertheless, I felt part of something, something with roots while in school, and I don't feel that connection here. For the first time in my life, I feel constantly on guard. I feel a need to be alert. Feverishly, Hester pried at the corner of the box, Gritting his teeth to put pressure on the handle, he finally forced a fingernail into a narrow opening and used the leverage to pull the package apart. Finally! The hair on the back of his neck stood up with excitement. Trixie started to dance. Shut up! Heather hissed. His imperious attitude was more than she could take. The barking woke Joe immediately. Here's what you do, the mechanic said, shifting a toothpick to the other side of his mouth. You want to get on 155. It's not the quickest way in terms of miles, but taking the turnpike will get you there the easiest. That'll probably make it the fastest route. North from there? Yes, but not far long. If you hit Pritchett, buddy, you've gone too far. Another thing, there won't be any roadside markers, so it would help if the little lady there kept a lookout for you on the right. Your turn will be to the right. Thank you, sir. Don't mention it. Joe sprang from the bed. A quick glance at the clock confirmed his fear that Trixie was in some kind of trouble. The noise had frozen both Trixie and Hester in their tracks. Joe intended to call out to her. He didn't, though, because he couldn't be sure the barking wasn't directed toward Connie. She would be home from church any moment. His first glance into the kitchen confirmed his fear that Hester was causing trouble. Perched on the countertop with a Girl Scout sugar cookie in his mouth was Hester, purring. He dropped the cookie down to Trixie and continued scratching at the packaging. Trixie, silenced by the bribe, took the cookie in her mouth and ran into the bathroom. A stunned Joe wouldn't have time to take the cookie away from her. In fact, she even stopped at her bowl for a drink of water. September 4th I've decided that my uneasiness on walks in this town doesn't have as much to do with the college nostalgia as I may have implied. The bottom line... I feel threatened. In school, how was I to be threatened? I carried little, if any, money. You don't fear being killed by pondering the overriding questions of existence. Life and death seem trivial issues by comparison. Admittedly, I had a few concerns. There was a small number of situations I carefully avoided. Steering clear of groups of uh, fraternity members pretty much eliminated the prospect of homosexual gang rape, though. You, you crossed that one menace out, and my mind was free to roam. Hello, Tom said, answering the telephone. Hello? 
Hello. Who am I talking to? The caller asked. You tell me, Tom answered, showing his characteristic impatience with intrusive phone calls. What do you mean? Is this AJ? Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Who are you? Oh, um, I'm Frank Forsha. Who are you calling, Frank? Frank Forsha, the caller answered. You are calling yourself on the telephone? No answer. Am I to understand that you, Frank Forsha, are calling to speak with a Frank Forsha? Tom asked. Maybe I should just hang up and let you two chat in private. No, I'm Frank Forsha. So I'm told. Who are you? Frank asked. Let's try this over again, Tom said. Who are you trying to call? Are you jerking me around? The caller asked, revealing a temper. Who called who here, Tom? By jerking you around. What kind of stupid son of a bitch are you? I'm the one being harassed in my home by a moron who says he wants to talk to himself on the phone in my home. Tom had touched a nerve. What the fuck is your problem? Don't you know it's against the law to verbally attack somebody over the phone? Well, I know it's illegal to make a harassing phone call, but as the receiver of your nuisance call, I've got every legal right to speak my mind freely, you cocksucking bastard. If you don't want to hear what I think of you, then don't annoy me with shit calls like this. Who is this? That's my point, you stupid bastard. You made the call and you don't even know who you called. What's wrong with this picture? Frank was silent. I'll tell you who I am, Tom said. I'm Frank Forsha, an unbelievably, incredibly, aggravatingly maladjusted moron. All right, asshole. You tell me who you are now, because if you don't, I'll... You'll what? Are you going to harass me with a prank phone call? Tell you what, dipshit. Why don't you give me your address? What? Give me your address, Frank. Or maybe I'll just look it up. Hey, hang on the line for a second. I'm going to look up your address so I can go over to your house with an ice pick and carve my goddamn name in your fucking forehead. A little cranial bleeding might relieve the pressure on your obviously overworked brain. Frank hung up. September 5th. Rereading from yesterday explains why I don't start these entries with Dear Diary. Homosexual rape isn't really Dear Diary material. I don't mean to demean or slander the fraternity system, but my concerns were somewhat empirically based. I mean, first, strong evidence suggested the presence of homosexual members to those social living groups. I mean, hell, logic alone suggested as much. Second, the panalytic system not only engendered, but often encouraged the type of pack behavior that taught violence as a traditional form of bonding. You didn't have to be aware of the rumors about the sexual component of certain Hell Week rituals to conclude that these possibilities did exist, and there was no way I was going to risk being stampeded by a herd of wild elephant walkers. To be more specific, I had observed random acts of Greek violence firsthand. These pack behaviors still alarm me more than what we commonly call street violence. Drug-related violence follows a certain pattern, and while I don't respect the mindset of the street criminal, I understand. To the contrary, I don't and won't comprehend what led fraternity members across the street from my apartment to take my kitten off the sidewalk, break his neck, skin him, and wear him around their house like a hand puppet. What goes on in the minds of these semi-educated college men? When the members of the house across the basketball arena cut down the 30-year-old pine tree from that elderly man's front yard one Christmas, at least the outline of reason was evident. 
they wanted a spectacular tree for their upcoming national tournament that was in town because television exposure was quite likely. They wouldn't or couldn't afford to buy one the size they envisioned. Stealing the old man's pine tree, the only one in his yard, was simple enough during a late-night covert operation. Since they only received a reprimand after being caught, clearly the risks weren't excessively high. Hence, these four points display a a reasoning that is deplorable, but not ultimately very confusing. They sought a Christian symbol to serve as a beacon to their unchristian spirit. Okay, Bob and Jack are back with Film Break. So Jack, next we'll review a movie this week that is much anticipated. Jurassic Park from Steven Spielberg. Bob, let me start by saying that many of us, not just movie-going fans, are delighted to see Spielberg back. As you know, most of his creative efforts have gone into production in recent years. And he has excelled as a producer with such works as Back to the Future and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Both of them made our top ten lists, but Hook, a movie on which we split our opinion, was his only real director's turn in the 90s. Now Spielberg has produced one of the most stunning films ever made. Jurassic Park is an adaptation of a Michael Crichton novel whose work has played well in Hollywood, in the past. Yes, Jack, we both like the Andromeda strain, and I was impressed by the Terminal Man. We both agree that Crichton, rising sun notwithstanding, does provide Hollywood good material. Jurassic Park exceeds those other examples with brilliant special effects and sound editing. Spielberg has masterfully woven the tricks of filmmaking into the story. He's done what movies like this should do. He shows us something we couldn't see anywhere else. More on that, Jack. He shows us something unimaginable even ten years ago. Anyone who was riveted by Godzilla will be transfixed. Which raises the point about children and the PG-13 rating. Yes, Jurassic Park is an excellent example in favor of the newest rating. Obviously, what a 14-year-old can handle emotionally differs significantly from what a 10-year-old could. Precisely. The effects here are good, so real, that I won't take my children to see it. My review of this movie, an opinion for which I've taken some heat, Jack, stems entirely from how much time you and I have spent talking about the special effects. That's because precious little can be praised about the plot, character development, and denouement. What happens if you take the light and magic out of this movie? I cannot disagree more with the point you made in print, and I won't let you make the same argument here. Jurassic Park would be hurt without the visual effects in the same way that, say, Star Wars would be. Since the story and the images are married on film, I don't see the point in playing one against the other. What we are talking about with Jurassic Park is not a marriage, Jack. Not by a long shot. Oh, here we go. I enjoyed the movie, but I have no inhibitions about why. Jurassic Park is a porno film. Granted, there aren't any naked, writhing human bodies in the movie, but there are plenty of writhing and snarling dinosaur bodies, and frankly, the plot is only window dressing for one deep throat encounter after another. You seem to have forgotten about Creighton's story and the established actors like Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum. It's not me who forgot them, Jack, it's Spielberg. He only uses them to stitch together enough dramatic justification for one big dinosaur moment after another. Ridiculous. Let's Let's take the disturbing porno label out of it for the sake for the sake of argument for a second. Instead, we can produce some common ground by comparing Jurassic Park to the teen sexploitation genre. It still won't work. Hear me out. 
We've complained numerous times about the predictability of those movies. It's not just the oversimplification of the plot, but how the plot only serves the goal of stripping actresses. The plot starts with some talk of sex, in this case dinosaurs. Then, within about 15 minutes, we are given a brief glimpse of nudity, or perhaps a lot of nudity off in the distance. By the next reel, we get a close upfront view of the big starlet. I agree that these movies exist to showcase TNA, and Jurassic Park proudly showcases its amazing special effects. There, the similarities end. The comparison with teen exploitation films may end there, but that's where the porno comparison picks right up. How's that? Because the rest of the film is one dinosaur devouring orgy after another. I can't believe you can make that comparison and then say you like the movie. Didn't you say last week that it was on your top five list of anticipated laser video disc releases? I did like it, beyond a doubt. Jurassic Park is one of the best of its kind. And when the next remake of Debbie Does Dallas is proposed to a studio, I want to be the first to recommend Steven Spielberg as a director. He has shown an affinity for the material. Aren't you being a little intellectually dishonest here? Not as dishonest as you, Jack. I'm calling a spade a spade. Jurassic Park is a porno movie, an impressively filmed one. Acknowledging that, I think it's worth a look to those who, A, don't mind a mindless plot, and B, won't be offended by all the goings-on. I, on the other hand, love the interplay Spielberg uses between his human characters and their dinosaur creations. No, you, on the other hand, saw some big ones, saw them moving and shaking, and decided that seeing something that you haven't seen at home was justification enough for an unconditional recommendation. Whatever you say, Bob. When we return, we'll review a new foreign film that has nothing to do with people being eaten alive, but everything to do with eating. September 6th. It's ironic that I've spent so much time bashing the fraternity system. What those groups offer is a sense of membership. What I've been painfully missing since graduating and moving out of the middle of nowhere is precisely that. Membership. Whether the goal is to become a member of the Christian community, or the cat-killing community, or simply the campus community, there is a compelling degree of comfort to be found in membership. I felt home on the streets of Cat Killer University in a way I never could feel in several thousandville, USA, because of membership. Of course, belonging requires a certain obligation. I didn't have to steal anyone's property or sacrifice anyone's pet. I didn't have to run naked through a cemetery, squeezing a marshmallow between my buttocks. I didn't even have to smoke a cigar or take a shot of tequila. I did, however, feel strong pressure to ponder the fundamental questions of life as a pledge to the intelligentsia. Answering, or even addressing such questions, required being in solitude. It required the kind of solitude I'm not finding on these unfamiliar streets. By the way, I never resolved anything. Not there, and not here. Even though the questions I confront here are much, much smaller. Did that used to be a speedy mart? I asked myself just the other night. Say you don't get an answer to that question. Say you can't resolve whether it was a speedy mart or a gas and go. Now, say you never resolve the multifaceted ramifications to the possibility that the existence of a world-creating Big Bang mandates the concept of infinite causal regression. In the latter case, defining the nature and involvement of a necessary being is a far greater, if equally futile, achievement 
to the former instance conclusion that the empty lot unquestionably was paved for one or the other convenience store at some seemingly distant time. Bigger questions, though unresolved, beget bigger answers. Chapter 3 Gone But Not Forgotten The Rainmakers, The Good News, and The Bad News It hardly seems five years ago that Kansas's The Rainmakers made their last of three recordings. Publicity was churning hard for Spend It On Love as a single, and work was already underway for a live album. All those hearty expectations fell flat. Now, with rare exceptions like the Jayhawks, Midwestern rock has largely fallen too. Both culturally and politically, an important rock and roll voice is missing. I was thinking about Abraham Lincoln and the enemies of the truth, but I couldn't tell a Kennedy from a John Wilkes Booth. Reckoning Day. Two dreams make the world go round, the one you lost and the one you claim you found. Shiny, shiny. Well, I made a lot of money, got a lot of good press, writing paperback novels like a man possessed. Every name was changed, every story was true, every priest was me, every stripper was you. Hootie who? The Rainmakers didn't write songs about farms, floods, and family, even though those elements surfaced throughout their work. Rather, they wrote about hatred and love, good and evil, and the intersections therein. In other words, they wrote rock music. The difference was the point of view. Rooted firmly in the heartland, the Rainmakers made common themes like divorce and greed seem real. Folk musicians consistently convey a sense of honesty, but few in rock and roll have echoed the integrity of the Rainmakers. I see a land divided down the middle and the sides are divided and divided again. I see so many, many people lonely, lover hating lover, friend against friend, and I'm alone. Yeah, I'm alone, and now I'm never coming home. I am a man without a country. I'm a boy without a home. Bob Walkenhorst, writer, The Battle of the Roses. Yak eg frei feli te am sav lik fa wala fa uv ai wakfob ri one four four zero s o p. Dan O'Neill hated the trip to Kansas City more than any other. For some reason, his shortest circuit seemed as long or longer than the others, unless on occasion he could connect the Kansas City trip to Omaha business. The best route took him through Nebraska City. An hour of two-lane driving took the ease out of the interstate. One solace the Kansas City trip offered was Houston's. Dan wasn't alone in his feeling that Houston's served the best steak in the Midwest. This night was no different. A waiting list of loyal customers stood between Dan and the next available table. How long did she say it would be? asked the man next to him at the bar. What? Dan asked. The wait. If I know how long she told you, then I'll have a guess about how much longer the wait will be for me. You see, I'm meeting somebody at 7.45. She said 45 minutes. Well, that should coordinate nicely. How long was it at your arrival? Dan asked. An hour. I'll tell you. This is the only place I'll wait at for an hour, he said, signaling the bartender for another drink. 
Dan looked around the bar. Light from the open fireplace in an adjoining room created a panorama across the, the canvas of tables, chairs, and faces. To his right, the counter disappeared behind a door to the kitchen. His eyes caught a waitress passing with a tray full of, he fancied, steaks and ribs. I'm Dan, Dan O'Neill, he said to his new acquaintance. No kidding, I'm a Dan too, Dan Thompson. I take it you live here in town? When I'm not in Washington or New York, this is home. Frankly, this is home all the time. I'm just not as home as often as I'd like to be. Tell me about it. My sales district includes Sioux Falls, Des Moines, and Wichita, with an occasional tour of Colorado. Where do you live? Lincoln. Football fan? It's the only perk I still have, Dan answered. As their conversation diverted into the particulars of Big 8 football, neither man noticed the tactical arrival of eight masked men with a variety of semi-automatic weapons. Two for Tabor. Your table's ready. Tabor, the greeter announced. A hush spread across the restaurant as many patrons began to identify the unmistakable signs of danger. Excuse me, a man's voice said over the sound system. I regret to inform the Tabor party of two that your table is not quite ready after all. Please remain seated. A woman from the side room, her face obstructed from Dan's view by the open fireplace, began screaming. The, su the sudden muffling of her voice led Dan to suspect the worst. He wasn't alone. As many as half the patrons arose to their feet at the same time Dan did. Some were hoping for a peek at what was happening. Others, like Dan, were investigating a possible exit. Those of you who are seated at booths, please remain seated, the man said through the intercom. Those of you who are seated on chairs, please stand. Probably Dan's most peculiar individual character trait was his hearing. He was introspective, so much so that he could make an entire room disappear. At times, the person seated next to him at a meeting might have to yell at him in order to break his trance. On the other hand, if he concentrated, Dan could hear the precise details of conversations carrying on through closed doors, even in interior rooms. Dan described himself as far-hearinged, much in the same way a far-sighted person can see significant distances with clarity but lacks 20-20 vision at close range, Dan was quite comfortable with his unusual sense of sound. Quiet, the man whispered from the hostess's podium. Quiet. Four and five, circulate and spread the word. Two, find the manager and contact me immediately when you find him. Seven, follow behind and confiscate any cellulars. I'll make the announcement. The group of intruders quickly spread throughout the restaurant. <clears throat> Attention, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, the man announced over the microphone. This is not a robbery. I repeat, this is not a robbery. Despite how disturbing this may appear to you, we have no intention of harming anyone. However, I must insist upon your cooperation in a couple of vital areas. First, anyone who is presently carrying a cellular telephone or other communication device will immediately loan your possession to one of our stewards now circulating through the restaurant. Trust me when I tell you that these items will be returned to you intact before you leave this establishment. Second, 
any of you in, who is presently in possession of a firearm or, for that matter, a weapon of any kind, knives, mace, obviously guns, will also loan your possession to one of the stewards. Again, I assure you that these items will be returned to you unaltered with the greatest possible haste. Please note, and this is important, that anyone who fails to meet these two, frankly insubstantial, conditions will be killed. Now, it is not my intent to threaten or upset any of you in any way. As I said, this is not a robbery. I wish you all good health and continued wealth. Unfortunately, my hopes for your futures are tied conditionally to these two simple requests I am now making of you. Dan stood quietly. He did not carry any weapons. His telephone was mounted inside his car. As far as money was concerned, he was confident that nothing in his wallet was too valuable to be replaced, and yet the feeling in his gut was considerably stronger than mere uneasiness. He felt threatened. In fact, the danger he sensed was both personal and imminent. Two of the so-called stewards had already passed through the bar. They motioned to some customers, others they frisked. So far, Dan was being ignored. Two has not yet located the manager. Dan believed he heard in a hushed voice coming from behind the lush shelf of greenery. Example time? The man with the intercom voice asked. I don't know, perhaps we should lean on the staff a little first. There's no better way to threaten an employee than to threaten a customer in the process. Well, well, one, should we proceed with the assassination without first securing the office? Yes and no. If we use a silencer, we'll still have to make some noise on the way out. We might double our trouble that way. But if we complete our primary objective in a mere show of terrorism, at least we don't have to worry about rubbing him out uh, during the potential confusion at the end of our stay here, uh, what do you think, Six? I agree. Fine. Let's take him down now. Publicly, but silently. Dan did not know how. By no means could he explain why. Yet he was overwhelmed by the sense that the target of this assassination would be him. I've never seen the eyes of these people before in my life, he thought. These aren't familiar voices, so why do they want to kill me? Dan wasn't asking whether he would die on this night. For him, the answer had become a foregone conclusion. His only hope was to influence the variables of when and where. Seven was passing through the bar again, holding his hand to his ear in a request for cellular telephones and other communication devices. He turned to face the plants that separated the bar from the door when the intercom was once again engaged. I have a message for any employee, or for that matter, regular customer, of this fine dining establishment. Your manager has not shown the appropriate willingness to take responsibility for the business that transpires in his establishment. With all the faces turned toward the eastern doors of the restaurant, especially those of the stewards, Dan slowly edged a path backward toward the swinging kitchen door. I believe, as a guest in this establishment, that any complaint I may have about the service I receive here should be addressed, in person, by a capable, attentive manager. That is, after all, the least one would expect. Please, staff, put yourself in my shoes for a moment. 
Although mentally hyperventilating, Dan paced himself carefully so that even his breath would not betray his movement away from the bar. I am a guest at your restaurant, and I have a problem. Please do not waste my time by inquiring what, if anything, you can do for me. Trust me when I tell you that my problem needs management attention. If my actions had failed in some manner to communicate the existence of such a problem before now, then I offer heartfelt apologies for what must have appeared to you to be an act of insincerity on my part. Dan felt his heel against the door leading into the kitchen. He paused for a moment to listen and to count. One was at the intercom, presently addressing the restaurant. Two was supposedly at or near the manager's office. Dan was taking on faith that the offices and kitchen were not within view. Four and five were in the non-smoking section. He could still see the back of Seven's head in the bar. Six, he presumed, was searching for him and probably had started in the smoking section. Dan could not account for the existence of eight or the possibility even of nine. Still, he figured his odds were 50-50, which he measured at double what they would be if he stood still much longer. Nevertheless, I'm being totally forthright in telling you that I do indeed have a problem, and that this problem will require immediate management attention. Now, just so you understand that what I'm telling you concerns my hopes for your future business success, as well as my own, I would like to pause here for a moment and share with you a proverb from the annals of business yore. Dan pulled the swinging door toward him by wedging his fingers between its rubber siding and the wall. By pulling the door rather than pushing it, Dan could increase his control on how the door closed. Once inside the kitchen, he figured he would either move freely or be shut on sight. What do you suppose happens to a business that ignores the complaints of its customers? Seriously, what does common sense tell us about businesses that ignore the complaints of honest customers? Well, two things. One is obvious. One, not, not so obvious. Once inside the kitchen, Dan timed himself at 20 seconds. He figured if he wasn't out of sight that quickly, his presence, or by then his absence, would be detected. This estimate created an added sense of desperation, though, because Dan was dismayed to discover that his images of walk-in pantries and vault door freezer entries were sadly overblown. At first glance, all he saw was an eight-foot ice machine that was nearly half full and covered with a sliding door. On the obvious side, a restaurateur who fails to address my needs will certainly lose me as a customer. I assure you, at this stage of my fine dining experience, your manager has already lost me as a customer. Not that I could not be persuaded to reconsider, but such a reconsideration will take some doing. On the less obvious side, the failure of your management team to ascertain and address my growing concerns as a customer will cost you. And of this, I assure you, the nation's leading business professors have no doubts. Other customers. That is right. If you cannot address the concerns of one increasingly irate customer, then those concerns ultimately may cost you the business of other customers as well. Dan pulled a large white tablecloth from a shelf beneath a cart filled with cutlery and silverware. 
quickly covering himself in the sheet. He opened the sliding door and slid into the storage bin holding ice beneath an industrial-sized ice-making machine. At first, he feared the sound of shifting cubes would alert terrorists in the dining room. However, he didn't have time to calculate these factors. As quickly as possible, he had to bury himself beneath both the sheet and the ice. Then, he would have plenty of time to consider his probability for success and pray that any searching steward would see nothing but white at the bottom of the ice machine and find nothing peculiar about that. You see, manager, wherever you are, I am an honest customer. I am an honest customer with a problem. I am an honest aggravated customer who needs your attention. Without your immediate attention, my problem will cost you the patronage of a loyal customer. Please note that your cowardice has, by now, cost you not only me, but another lifelong guest. Six, he said, addressing one of his partners. Not yet. Two rooms to go, Six responded. Eight emerged from the foyer and loaded a silencer to the barrel of his handgun. Inside the office, at the south side of the building, Polly began pulling the drawers out of her desk's left side. Ms. Basehart was a young woman by most any measure, yet she was already enjoying the perks associated with long-term success. Her desk, for example, was large enough to sleep on. It was made out of solid wood, including individual shelves for each drawer. The path Polly was creating with drawers led to the open safe. Working at a paradoxically energetic and counterproductive pace, Polly was taping bills together in an effort to pull all but about $150 from the safe, with that mostly enrolled coin. She bankrolled two bundles of $100 each and put the remaining currency in a $76 bundle. She then pulled her scotch tape dispenser to the edge of her desk and picked up one of the drawers off the carpet. Ms. Basehart, a voice called from the hall, followed by a feeble knock at the door. No answer. Ms. Basehart? Who's there? She asked, her heart pounding at a dangerous rate. It's Paul. Yes? The people who came in here a few minutes ago are rather anxious to speak with you, he said. I've heard the intercom, she answered. I'm not alone out here, Paul said. Polly stammered. Paul, I threw up a few seconds ago. Please, please apologize for me and tell them that I will be out in just a moment. I need to straighten up. Paul didn't answer. After a moment of observing silence through the bolted door, Polly returned to her project at an even more aggressive pace. One by one, she tilted each of the drawers atop her desk and taped a bundle of cash underneath it. Beneath her middle drawer, she taped an envelope containing most of her cash and every credit card except J.C. Penney and her oldest visa. The manager's coming out at any moment, two told one. Let's not wait, he replied, motioning for two and eight to return to her doorway. He then turned to Paul. What's your name and position, son? I'm Paul, a shift supervisor. Paul, I'm not the least bit worried about your telephone system, but does your manager have any other means of communication in his office? Not unless she has something in her purse. All the office has is a telephone and the intercom. Does she own a cellular phone? Could she have, could she have something like that in her purse? No. 
You are an assistant manager, one asked. No, I'm next in charge after that. Listen carefully, Paul, because I have two life-or-death questions. Paul nodded while looking predominantly toward the floor. Is there an assistant manager working today? No. So I am stuck with you and your manager. Um, um, one said, prodding Paul for a name. Ms. Basehart. Fine. Does your restaurant employ the use of a silent alarm? No, we've never been robbed that I know of. Don't fret, boy. You still haven't been robbed. Polly straightened her skirt and looked again in her purse, which she left on the desk. She didn't want to arouse the kind of suspicion that surely would follow an empty safe or purse. On the other hand, her friend at Penny's could quickly cancel that credit card if stolen, and her first college visa card only carried a $500 limit. Two and eight knocked again on the office door, which Polly opened. Concentrate. Concentrate, she told herself. Don't worry about what they say or do. Worry instead about answers to the kinds of questions the police will ask. How many are there? What do they look like? Descriptions. Age. Race. Gender. Hair color. Eye color. Any distinguishing marks or characteristics. What about their weapons? How would you identify that gun? Well, it seems larger than guns on TV. Maybe not larger so much as longer. Yes, it looks like it has two barrels, both black. It's a handgun, but not a revolver. All right, while you walk, if you walk with them, study their shoes, too. See if they are dressed. Are they in common uniforms? Where do you need me to go? She asked from the doorway. Polly wasn't sure she saw smoke from the gun. Of course, she wasn't sure her fall ended with a collapse to the floor, either. Her only conscious thought was that everything starting with her sight and ending with her sense of equilibrium, had completely lost anchor. Two and eight dragged her body back into the office and shut the door. Four and five returned to the foyer about the same time two and eight had completed their project. Has anyone reacted to our termination of the manager? One asked. Nothing worth any worry, five said. The screamer is still unconscious, four answered. Fine. We will need you by the front door. Shoot at will if it proves necessary to stop a panic attack. Project completed, two said, approaching the group. Should I relieve three at the back door? Yes. Wait for instructions from six. Just then, six emerged from the non-smoking section. Have we located dear Danny boy? One asked. No sweat, six answered. We got him on ice in the back. All right, all right, the programming director yelled. Let's get back to work and set up our features for the weekend. The secretary flipped back to the previous page in her notebook. Okay, Bill said, turning to face Heidi. Urban? Done, she replied. Jazz and easy listening? Together. Rap? Tabled, but unresolved. Half of us will work on a new jazz swing combo. The other half will put together a late night FCC special. Gangsta double shots. Fine, Bill said. Our remaining priorities are Roger Miller, Danzig, and classical music. What, are we now going to add Mother? Stephen asked. No, no, I think we're firmly standing behind Godless. Am I right? The room concurred without enthusiasm. Jim Morrison singing for Black Sabbath, Greg said sarcastically. 
Let's bait and switch again, Clive said. Every commercial break for the hour, we can promote an upcoming Danzig song. Then, after leading the Virgin fan to expect the hit single, we smack them with Godless. Prime time, people. Prime time, the programming director added. How much play do we have to give Miller, Bill? Stephen asked. I think we have to go with an entire block, he answered. If we're going to take away the country programming altogether to commemorate the man's death, I think we have to do it right. Pardon my lack of enthusiasm, Steve said. If I may interject, Greg interrupted. Don't forget, gang, that we started this radio station as a pirate station. Songs that suck is a key element to our reign of terror. I find the fact that you dislike the music of Roger Miller an even more compelling reason to lay on four or five tracks in a block. So I guess the obvious point is, what do we pair with King of the Road? Bill asked. Something from Big River, I suppose, Clive said. Maybe dang me, Stephen said. Maybe we could play dang me backward. Now you're talking, Bill said. My only preference would be something from Robin Hood, Greg mentioned. People seem to have forgotten about his work for Disney. I hate that Udi Lolly thing, Bill said. I was thinking about the slow song. It's called, um, I think, Not in Nottingham. Sort of a blues number, right? Bill asked. That's the one. Fine. Let's move on to classical. Any opinions? Bill asked. Do we want to compare with Danzig or contrast? Clive asked. Contrast. Chopin, Clive replied. Solo piano, Stephen asked. More of a series of polonaises. Okay. You put together a block, say about 20 minutes, and we'll go with it. Bill said. One more thing, Stephen said, averting any adjournment. Did you see the column in this morning's paper? The music column? Yeah, not so much the review of Carol King or Pantera, though. I was thinking about the retrospective part, Stephen said. The Rainmakers, Clive said, bringing the other men up to date. The critic did a song and dance for their last album. So what do you think? Bill asked. Do we pull out Reckoning Day or Dry Dry Land? Quite the opposite, Stephen said. I resented the emphasis on the late songs. Let's dig deeper than that. Don't we have a live cut of Let My People Go Go? Clive asked. Yes, Bill answered. Well, then it's settled. That'll give the paper a little taste of our own gone and forgotten review. Are we adjourned? Greg asked. Yes, Bill said. Fill in the blanks, gentlemen. Final listings on my desk first thing in the morning. Cut to the goal by Benson with an assist from Wingate. That was a second period goal that put Franklin up 3-1. to one. And the final score? Jump to scoreboard. 4-3. to three. Our Jim Davies is at the rink and ready to speak with the winning coach. Jim? Live remote at the rink, focus direct to Davies. Okay, a must-win game for the team today, coach, and you won it. Pull back medium shot of Davies with coach. We have a lot of work left to do. You know, as as you know, as long as we are four points behind Owen, we're still going to need some breaks. You did get some breaks today, especially in Hale's giveaways deep in their zone. Well, that's correct. They hung with us until the end. We did our best to just stay within reach of first place. Pan away from Coach, back into close-up at Davies. Four points down and two games to go looks tough, Mike. But the game of the season is head-to-head between the two division leaders. Return to studio. Focus on Smith. 
Before next weekend, you would expect Franklin to handle Central with ease. Meanwhile, Omaha travels to Tecumseh, always a top-five team. Cut to the graphics of the prep standings. Roll-up chart to reveal dates, locations, remaining games. It's this simple. If Franklin wins and Owen loses, the next weekend will be a winner-take-all for the home seed in the state tournament. Return focus to Smith. Any overtime ties, though, it'll give the title to Owen. Pan away from sports to co-anchors. Background mug of president. Thanks, Mike. Recapping our top story. In the midst of an escalating CIA double agent scandal, the president insisted today that counterintelligence measures were initiated weeks ago at the start of the investigation. Directors of both the CIA and FBI insist that there is nothing to fear. Increased CIA and FBI cooperation would be an unexpected side benefit to this dilemma. Always seeking the silver lining, Deborah. Thanks, Simon. Pan back to a long shot revealing the entire set. Faden logo. Good night. Chapter 4 Lights fully dim after So that's what they mean by the expression walking the beat. Follow a spot. Offended? I don't understand. Who, who have I offended? The cop? The reporter? Ladies and gentlemen, I have somehow offended the gentleman in the third row with my innocent little story. Now maybe he is a police officer or reporter. If so, he didn't come here tonight prepared in any way to laugh at himself. That's sad. In any event, let me assure you, I didn't intend any offense. At least not at this point in my routine. However, if Officer Winchell there is going to leave offended with a negative opinion of me as a performer, then I feel obligated to give him a true story with which to take offense. I don't see any other option. So, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, ladies in particular, let me apologize in advance for this foray into the life and times of V8 Nate. Nicknames were pretty common on my college dormitory floor. Sometimes an entire night could go by without anyone being called by proper name. It was Sledge here, Moe there, and Firecrotch over there. Most names weren't ambiguous or arbitrary, including V8 Nate. His real name was Nathan. It would be better for all of us if I didn't reveal his last name for reasons that will soon be obvious. Nathan had the world's most incredible collection of <clears throat> men's magazines. He was a subscriber to more of these rags than I even knew existed. I'm not talking about Playboy and Penthouse. He got them, but he regarded them as more wallpaper than a real magazine. No, every month... My mail would bring a letter from home, an unwanted credit card offer, and the monthly record club deal. His brought him swank, knave, hustler, wee, crotch shots, you name it, he got it. As I mentioned, he viewed your run-of-the-mill adult magazine as wallpaper fodder. Before I finally moved across the hall, he had transformed the largest corner, the one without a closet, window, or door, into what I called the Wall of Shame. Every other row was a year of Playboy centerfolds, followed by the corresponding year of Penthouse. For his closet and the ceiling above his bed, he reserved what he regarded as the true porn. Now, I don't want to come off as a prude here. At 18 years old, first year away from home, etc., etc., 
I initially didn't mind the extra study materials Nathan provided, but I wasn't naive enough to presume that my homework would fit in with his lifestyle. One day, while reading the cartoons, I swear, Mom, I was just reading the cartoons, I saw something so offensive that I simply had to share it with the group. The cartoon pictured a woman lying on the bed, minstrelly bleeding on the sheets. On the floor, a used tampon was staining the carpet. A man at her feet was wiping blood off his face. The caption read, Gosh, I could have had a V8. The vegetable juice people, who no doubt would be offended, have no cause for complaint. Anyone old enough to remember their annoying series of commercials will understand where this scatological pun came from. I mean, years of watching a commercial protagonist look up from a morning cup of coffee and exclaim, Gosh, I could have had a V8! What inspired sarcasm from sources much more credible than penthouse cartoonists? Nevertheless, one person in our dorm room was not offended by the cartoon in the least. You guessed it. Very, very sharp, man. Do you do, you do this for a living? <laughs> Switch to Oki accent for the Nate voice. What, you boys ain't earned your red wings yet? Nathan asked, and he proceeded to tell us a story. Nate grew up in the small town of Sealing, Oklahoma. Population? Well, I've got a bigger crowd here, thank God. His sister, who was three years older, went to Southwestern State University in Weatherford. At about an hour away, visiting her was more than a mere road trip, but she was close enough for a weekend visit. Many a weekend during Nate's sexually active senior year was spent there, cruising the strip, picking up girls, and consuming ridiculous amounts of alcohol. One morning, Nate woke up in his sister's extra bedroom, shocked to find blood on his sister's satin sheets. His initial panic over how, it, how much it would cost to replace her linens was erased by the sight of blood all over his face in the bathroom mirror. Nate was still a little drunk and rebounding off a night he could not remember. He checked his mouth, looking to see if he'd lost a tooth or something. Finally, he concluded that he was looking at a bigger mess than any tooth could cause. Then, upon careful consideration, he realized that the blood stains on his face were spread in an unusual symmetry. Then he remembered. Not the girl, of course. She was long gone, and he wasn't inclined to recall her name. He did, however, remember her idea, and it was her idea. I believe Nate when he said this. It's not like Nate was an honest guy. He wasn't. Rather, you could count on Nathan to take credit for any sexual notions, so his willingness to credit her was unusual enough to be genuine. Nate like most people on the planet, was initially sickened by his sad state of affairs. Yet, in a twist we soon learned was ever so typical of his twisted brain, he made peace with his actions. His rationale. One, he lived to tell the story. Two, the girl didn't think any less of him than she already did. And three, he got some action out of it. For Nate, that one-two-three punch was more than enough more than any sense of decorum could possibly overcome. The only person who suffered any for Nate's precarious discovery was his sister. You see, Nate's efforts at stain removal proved fruitless. On the other hand, I don't think anybody should start feeling too sorry for the fate of Nate's sibling. For one thing, she knew what he was up to during his southern swings into town. 
In fact, she provided him the extra bedroom with the satin sheets for just such an eventuality. More to the point, though, Nate's elder was indirectly responsible for creating this sexual Frankenstein in the first place. Three years earlier, back at home in Sealing, Nate returned home from a summer soccer practice to find one of his sister's senior class friends watching soap operas in the living room of his family's modest three-bedroom home. The friend of the family told young Nate that his sis would be right back any minute, and sis invited her to stay so that she could keep the both of them up to date on the daytime dramatics. Nate thought nothing of it, and proceeded to the shower. To hear Nathan tell this story, his sister's friend was, of course, the most sexually attractive girl ever to live in western Oklahoma. He couldn't, or wouldn't, describe for us the particulars of this so-called unbelievable body, a fact very much in conflict with the typical morning after with V8 Nate. With this one exception, he was never short on details. To make a long story short, Nate's sister was, truth be told, in not-so-nearby Clinton, trying to test out of freshman-level biology classes. Meanwhile, her friend was revealing this fact and quite a few others to the 15-year-old boy during the course of a long, wet shower. A very different boy toweled off that afternoon. The kind of boy who would shrink at the thought of menstrual cunnilingus was washed forever down the drain. Those of us who weren't shocked by his shower story weeks earlier were, needless to say, shocked by the climate of his Weatherford tale. We had long ago given up the notion that he was pulling our legs. During the first two weeks of school, Nate had claimed that he had bedded six fellow freshmen and one sophomore, and one of them repeatedly. Of course, we challenged the particulars of his testimony, but circumstantially, the times and places of his deposition seemed to match perfectly. So in hopes of shutting him up once and for all, we bugged him. Being the good roommate that I am, I borrowed a voice-activated tape recorder, set it, and left it below his bed when we went to the bars that night. Much to our dismay, the next morning confirmed every nuance of Nate's play-by-play. Worse yet for us would-be debunkers, the girl who came to visit was Gina, the very girl he had seen repeatedly. Not only did we lose our opportunity to expose a liar who was leading us on with his just-read-it-in-forum stories, we also lost our opportunity to deny that he must be doing something right. Gina seemed a clear indication that V8 Nate was doing something quite well. Most of us wrote off Nate's success to as a credit to his debasement. After all, he was willing to do anything. We were consistently reminded of how far he would go as he would occasionally turn a co-ed's not-a-good-time-for-me line into a violent, aggressive come-on. I, on the other hand... Since that one day, one day, V8 Nate would get slammed. I didn't have to wait long. Two weekends after our regrettable tape recording scam, Debbie came to town. It's hard to imagine a guy like Nate with a girlfriend. Arguably, in a swinging couples kind of way, Gina might have qualified as one. But Debbie was a hometown girlfriend. For Debbie... Maintaining a relationship with Nate did give her a college man connection. Edmund was far enough removed from ceiling to give Nate room for debauchery, but it was close enough for Debbie to do Edmund the same way Nate had done Weatherford the year before. We were left largely to guess about Debbie's appeal to Nate. She was more or less as desirable as the mixed bag of beauty he had been picking from in college. Her family wasn't rich and there were no prospects for marriage, as far as we knew, she didn't have any blackmail evidence to use against him. 
The process of elimination left us with two probable choices. One, she knew some serious tricks in bed. Or two, he really loved her. Debbie's pending visit posed a problem for Nate. Namely, in with Deb and out with Gina. Take it as a given that Gina didn't take the news lying down, even though that's how she received the news, and I've got a tape at home to prove it. Of course, Nate didn't take Debbie's pending arrival for granted either. He left the wall of shame untouched, but he did remove the action posters from the ceiling, leaving only one offensive poster hanging inside his closet door. He spent the remaining two days shaking Gina off. Although sleeping with her for several days of his first two, three weeks in school certainly distinguished her from V8 Nate's other prey, he coldly assured her that two weeks with her couldn't compare to the two years with Debbie. I was the first person on the floor to see Debbie. Tim, the neighbor across the hall, with whom I'd hoped to swap rooms, was waiting with me in our room for Nate's slow and steady walk down the hall. While bringing a girl into a dorm was generally a source of notoriety, bringing a hometown high school girl was a risky venture, far too risky for any sudden impulsive movements. So Nate approached us as if he was navigating through a minefield. As I have hinted, Tim and I were not particularly impressed. She seemed nice. She was generally attractive. Nevertheless, we were convinced that she must have known some serious tricks in bed. Conversational tone with Oki slang and then my serious voice. Debbie, he said, introducing us. This is Dave. Dave, I'd like you to meet Debbie. Pleasure to meet you, I told her. With the exception of Nate the Great here, I've never really met anyone from Ceiling. She said hello. We decided to skip dinner and go as a group to the bars. I left to round up the gang. At this point, I'm going to use some poetic license. You'll have to grant me two things. First, trust that I'm telling you a true story. Nothing, after all, could possibly be as offensive as the truth. Second, this moment where I'm departing from events I personally I witnessed was confirmed by both Nate and Debbie. So while I didn't hear their conversation, no tape recorders under the bed this time, we can take the content of the said conversation for granted. Debbie decided that she preferred Nate dressed in a purple polo shirt. Like me, he was part of those trendy high school purple polo clubs. What? Right, undeniably a bunch of yuppie bullshit. Thanks for sharing. Is there anything embarrassing from your high school years you'd like to bring up? No? Back to the subject at hand. Nate looked at her, looked at his closet, and looked back to Debbie. He was hoping to find a way to change her mind. More to the point, he was hoping to find a way of shielding her view from the Dirty Dykes magazine centerfold hung on the inside. I've got to tell you, not only did that poster take away some glamour that lesbianism might have fleetingly had, it was enough to make me want to reconsider many sexual questions. Generally speaking, you ask me to look at a picture of two women performing 69, and I'm likely to say okie dokie without much thought. These women, however, were two of the least attractive nudes I've ever seen. I'm not calling them ugly. They weren't fat or covered in zits or suffering from elephantiasis. They just weren't pretty. I suppose the photographer was looking for a sandy look. However, it, they didn't look covered in sand so much as covered with silt. It was nothing more than a huge picture of two nasty, filthy lesbians licking each other. The Dirty Dyke Centerfold had taken its publication name a tad too seriously. 
Debbie opened his closet door, and Nate sprouted wings and flew across the room. He landed directly between her and the backside of the door and spread his arms behind his head in a huge, fake yawn. There was a chance that the bright-eyed small-town girl might have opened the closet, removed the shirt, and closed it without noticing anything at all. But not with Nate's sudden display of panic. Insert the Oki slang voice for uh, Nate. Simple falsetto will do for Debbie. What's that picture behind you? She asked. What? There's a picture of something inside your closet door. On the inside of my door, he said, innocently enough. Oh my God! She exclaimed. Mary, mother of Jesus! Nate exclaimed, feigning shock. That Dave! That Dave! He's really gone too far this time. Your roommate did this? Don't be upset, Nate replied. It's just a practical joke. Boys will be boys, you know. He was just pulling a fast one on me in hopes of disrupting our night together. He's been getting a little tired sleeping on Tim's floor. Why has he been sleeping on Tim's floor? Debbie asked, naively failing to notice Nate's inadvertent revelation. Oh, he hasn't, he hasn't, but we've been teasing him a lot about the fact that he's going to be sleeping on the floor. Damn nice of him, really, he said with a smile. Debbie returned his devilish grin. Considering what a sport Dave's being, I think we can forgive this tasteless prank, don't you? Debbie agreed. The two most important lessons to be learned here are, one, although she wasn't a horse's ass, Debbie could be led to water and persuaded to drink. Two, nobody could surpass Nate for quick-thinking, results-oriented bullshit. We weren't two steps inside the club before Tim identified Gina. He didn't have to be told what to do, and immediately kicked his damage control efforts into high gear. While the gang and I accompanied the happy couple to the upstairs table, Tim and his roommate formed a wedge between Gina and the group. Giorgio's was one of those pathetic early 80s dance clubs. The beer was cheap, the crowd was happening, but the music was never ever good. How we sustained ourselves all those months with no rock and roll on a Friday night was hard to fathom. Worse, the place didn't even have the new wave thing going for it. I mean, a little tainted love or even Der Commissar would have been a welcome change from the nightly doses of Whippet Baby by the Daz Band and, of course, many a thrilling tune by Michael Jackson. Further adding to the irony, none of us danced. I mean, some of us did. Some of us, some of us even parlayed a couple of dances into some serious action. But truth be known, we sat on the upper floor to avoid the dancers below. Soon enough, Tim reported back. Much like a couple of sorority girls, Tim whispered into Nate's ear and the two decided they had to use the toilet together. This forgettable moment in an otherwise unforgettable night was a masterful example of sex role reversal. The content of the urgent talks? Gina was claiming to be pregnant. Tim was convinced it was too soon for her to know. Expressing an embarrassing level of experience with home pregnancy testing, Tim assured Nate that Gina was lying. Nate didn't care. Either way, he wasn't interested. Armed with more advanced information than he needed, Nate returned to our table. Our second round of pitchers and first round of popcorn had just arrived when Gina finally broke through the security net room 273 had been weaving around our table. Insert female voice with a higher falsetto than Debbie. Nate, I need to tell you something, Gina said, catching all of us off guard. With the volume of the music blaring over the disco system, Nate tried to ignore her. Nate! 
Nate, she yelled, grabbing his shirt sleeve. By now, all eyes, including Debbie's, were on her. Nate was trapped. Nate, she said, tears welling up in her eyes. I'm pregnant! Despite the booming beat of the barquets, despite the cacophony of conflicting conversation from nearby tables, despite the atmosphere thick with perfume and smoke, Gina had seemingly silenced the world. With our table literally frozen on the cold concept she dropped on him, all eyes were on V8 and 8. Well, congratulations! That's just great! Mike told me you guys had been trying. I can't be more happy for you, an effusive Nate exclaimed. If I had some cigars, I'd be passing them around right now. You simply have to tell Mike to come by sometime. We'll split a pitcher in his honor. Gina was speechless. You haven't met my girlfriend, Nate said, emphasis on the term girlfriend. Gina, fighting off tears, stood in disbelief. Gina, this is Debbie. Debbie, Gina. You two may not have met. Gina married Mike this summer, Nate told Debbie, laying it on thicker and heavier. You remember Mike, the goalie for our summer league team a couple years ago? They were high school sweethearts too, just like us. Debbie was placated. Gina simply disappeared, no doubt in tears. Quite logically, we presume she had slithered into the cracks of the sidewalk and dribbled home through the drainage system. Nate was so satisfied with his performance that he was mentally dusting off the shelf for the inevitable Oscar. Of course, we couldn't have been more wrong. Maybe it's just my luck, like a karma that follows me from dance hall to dance hall. But I've never spent more than two hours in one of those bars without the disc jockey making at least a minor brain fart. Either they'll repeat the same song unintentionally in a series, or they'll announce one track while playing the intro to another, or, and this one is my favorite, this one's the cardinal sin, the one that Disco Bob absolutely cannot forgive, the grand pause. Now those of you unlearned in the nuances of classical music may not be familiar with the term grand pause. In blues, we call it stop time. In urban jazz, it's breakdown, or it was until rap got a hold of that expression. In dance clubs... We call it the stupid DJ forgot to start the next track on time and left a group of sweaty dancers staring foolishly at each other for a couple of seconds. Not a scientific term, I know, which is why I decided to go with Grand Pause. The other irony I've noticed when these moonlighting DJs fell up is how often the sudden stop in the music brings a sudden stop to all conversation as well. It's as though real living people carrying on with vital active conversations were truly nothing more than a laugh track for the pop singers. Only once in my life have I seen this connection, the one between the song stopping and the conversation stopping, fail to follow through. The sole exception was Gina. She was so upset upon returning to our table to reprise her confrontation with Nate that she probably didn't hear the music playing. She certainly didn't hear the music end. And in a deathly moment of unexpected silence, Gina returned to our table and yelled, Forget any falsetto, buddy. Say it loud, say it proud. Nate, you licked my pussy and I liked it! Grand pause for you here. If it plays well, shake your head ruefully at the crowd. Cover the time with some math. 2x plus 6 equals 8. 2x equals 8 minus 6. 2x equals 2. x equals 2 divided by 2. x equals 1. 
You know, you shouldn't laugh at the misfortune of others, don't you know? Um, of course, that's what everyone in the bar was doing, at least everyone upstairs and most of the people down the back hall. Somehow Gina picked that one magic moment to scream her fool head off. My testimony here is based upon hearing only, because I didn't see a whole lot after Gina blurted her true feelings to the world. Laughing so hard I couldn't see straight, I tipped over my chair, crashed against the table behind us, and ended up flat on the floor below Debbie. The next thing I saw was V8 Nate crawling out of the bar on his hands and knees. And Debbie? I can't speak for the rest of the weekend, but a month later she was back in town, hitting the bars with Nate and the gang. In fact, things were so firmly back to normal that Tim spent the weekend sleeping on the floor of my newly acquired room as a personal courtesy to his new roommate, V8 Nate. Pause here for a drink of water, even if you're not thirsty. I only told that story so you'd understand this one, and I'm only telling this one for the sake of Officer What's-His-Name, who seems to have left the building. Once the new freshmen got more accustomed to one another, our activities began to exceed mere studying and partying. A couple of us started attending a group called Campus Christians, formed by a sophomore from our sister dorm. Now, sister dorm only meant that we shared a cafeteria. For the most part, sisterly feelings were by far outnumbered by more amorous ones. But not when it came to Mary. Mary was a very special girl. She was a good student, well-liked by all who knew her, and she had enormous patience. I'd never seen her angry. Even when upset by events she encountered, she almost always approached them with a problem-solving attitude. You hear the expression from time to time about the woman you wouldn't want to bring home to mom? Well, Mary was exactly the opposite. She was plain, very simple, but not quite homely. Mom would have loved her. Even within our group, the nickname Virgin Mary began to circulate about her because she never dated, and she seemed to be a personification of purity. Nevertheless, I had a sense that beneath the surface, Mary had the potential to be stunningly attractive. I'd compare her to the high school classmate you meet on campus two years later and suddenly realize, hey, she grew a butt, that's nice. Of course, if you said it to her that way, she'd probably take it as an insult, so instead you just say something less threatening, like, hey, you look great, good curves. Then allow her to be confused, thinking you've made an unwarranted reference to her breasts. But I digress. Needless to say, we were all considerably shocked to see V8 Nate coming down the hall one weekday night with Virgin Mary under his arm. Nate's humiliating experience at the hands of Gina months earlier had not changed him, nor had the so-called maturation process college allegedly brings on. In fact, he still updated the wall of shame, and his inner closet was continually adorned with the dirty dykes or something worse. All of us immediately sensed a disastrous clash of cultures. If she had come to save his soul, I thought she is going to be lucky to save her own dignity. We didn't do what loyal floor mates typically do for an incoming companion, namely set up a quasi-abusive receiving line. Instead, most of us headed for the hills, expecting lightning to strike us all dead sooner rather than later. Tim and I, on the other hand, loaded the voice-activated tape recorder, shoved it under Nate's bed, and hung out nonchalantly in the hallway. Use a prim falsetto for Mary, reprise Nate's voice. Is this some kind of a joke? she asked 
in a tone of voice I'd never heard from her before. What? Is this really your room? Well, yeah. Don't tell me those are your... your... pictures on the wall. Um, no. Those are the pictures of Miss August, September, October, November... Shut up! Just shut up! I don't want to hear it. I have never seen such an unbelievably sexist, insensitive, dastardly display of of debauchery. I can't even think straight. How could you hang those things all over your walls like that? Nate was silent at first, but you, you could just hear him shaking his head at her. Tape, he answered. Well, that set her off. The one person I'd met in college that I considered totally unflappable had been totally flapped, flapped up the head something fierce, and she was letting loose to compensate for years of self-control. As far as we could tell, Nate just stood there and took the medicine for a while. No doubt, V8 Nate was looking for an opportunity to turn her anger to his sexual advantage. He might have been considering whether she was on the rag. You just have to know Nate to understand. Meanwhile, Mary was laying it on thicker and heavier. Every fifth word was offensive. Every sixth word was disgusting. She managed to incorporate her fair share of sick, perverted, and degrading as well. And at one point, I wondered whether the tape's 30-minute side was going to contain her monologue. If she had planned to convert him to the flock with some kindness and understanding, her approach had now fully switched to fire and brimstone. After she passed the phrases offensive and disgusting for the 15th time, Nate interrupted her. Listen, listen, shut up and listen, he said, getting a word in edgewise. I think you made your point loud and clear, ma'am, but you haven't even bothered to ask me for my opinion. Okay, she said, finally chilling. I'm sorry I've crossed the line with you somehow. Frankly, I didn't think you'd be so upset. I've had dozens of women in this room this year, and you are the first to complain. How many came back? Hell, how many have I asked to come back? Babe, when I call, they come, usually repeatedly. Anyway, you know what I find sick and offensive? I find sick and offensive your misuse of the term sick and offensive. The human body, especially the female human body, and extra especially the stark naked female human body, is not offensive in any way. It's flat out beautiful. In fact, I agreed to take you here tonight on a hunch that your naked female human body was worth getting worked up about. Care to prove me wrong? No, I'm leaving. Fine with me, but I preferred if you didn't leave with such a terrible misconception about me. What do you mean? You think I'm a guy who doesn't have any real set of values. You think I wouldn't recognize something that was ugly, perverted, and degrading if it smacked me upside the head. Am I right? She was silent, but apparently nodded. Before you go, then, allow me a chance to prove you wrong. Now, let me see. You find Miss March offensive. I don't understand that. She loves children. She considers herself a romantic. She even lists the Bible among her favorite books. You're missing the boat, lady, if you think this girl's offensive just because she can't keep her satin teddy over her breasts very well and she's not wearing any panties. Let me see if I got this straight. This is sick. This is perverted. Yes. You find this offensive? Yes. You got a lot to learn, lady. That's not offensive, he said, apparently sweeping a hand toward his wall of shame. Now that, he said, to the creaking sound of his closet door opening wide, that is offensive. Mary screamed like the great horror actresses of old. 
Her shriek, plus the sound of her colliding with Nate's door, brought most of us out of our bedrooms. Even the ones only wearing underwear shamelessly ventured down the hall to investigate the scene of the crime. After bouncing off the door she tried to run through without opening, Mary fumbled at the handle, threw open the door, and rushed into the hall. Immediately, she was surrounded by a dozen men or so, most in their underwear. Again, she screamed as if the specter of Vincent Price was clutching her by a leg and pulling her into a pit filled with unspeakable horror. We can presume Virgin Mary hadn't seen many men in their underwear at such a proximity. Pushing her way through the crowd, she ran off the floor, down the stairs, and all the way across the parking lot to her dormitory. From my window, you could still see her running and a trace of her figure careening through the lobby toward her elevator. The moral to this story, and I'm sorry my heckler isn't around to hear this, the moral of this story is be careful not to be so easily offended. If someone wants to repulse you, it may prove as simple as opening a door. Mr. Arthur? Mr. Arthur, a crowd of reporters called. Trey was pleased by the attention being maintained through the world premiere. Yes, he said, pointing to a reporter. Are you concerned about the attacks against Donald Trump in the play? Why should I be concerned? Well, you're saying some borderline slanderous things. I haven't said anything about Mr. Trump. The reporter looked exasperated. Now my character did. The senator from Missouri said a couple things that the Donald Trump in my play would, would have found most uncharitable. So a potential libel or defamation suit never entered your thinking? Well, of course not. Anything you say on the floor of the U.S. Senate is privileged information. You should know that from journalism school. That senator can say whatever he pleases without any concern because our system of government was designed to give elected officials the freedom to think aggressively from the Capitol without fear of reprisal. To what degree did the Sullivan case play a role in your decision to express these views through a senator and about a man as well-known as Trump? Another reporter asked. I'm not sure I follow your question. Times versus Sullivan? Regarding public figures? Did you feel more at ease making Donald Trump a target knowing he was a public figure? Me? Or Senator Hansen? Trey caught the reporter off guard by making the distinction. What's the difference? The reporter responded. Well, for one, I'm not a United States senator from Liberty, Missouri. Then you, I'm, I'm asking one writer to another how much you use Time versus Sullivan as a buffer zone. So you're asking me about public figure stipulations? Right. As a writer, particularly as a fiction writer, those distinctions mean precious little to me. So you weren't using Trump's notoriety as a shield to defend your attacks? He asked, skeptically. What am I doing, teaching journalism law 101? Most of the reporters laughed. Listen, you can't lose a libel suit for expressing an opinion. This is fiction, people. Now, maybe Donald Trump won't like my story ideas. Maybe he won't care for the opinions some of my characters express. I, for one, hope he's amused. Amusement, after all, is a luxury that should offset the occasional drawbacks of fame and fortune. Either way, my work is an opinion expressed through fiction. Furthermore, the antagonist in my story is expressing an opinion to his fellow senators. And yet, even furthermore, the said opinion is privileged speech. Case closed. What do you want to talk about now, guys? Split infinitives? Trey quipped. The jokes aside, Mr. Arthur, the first reporter said, it does seem to some of us that you are ducking responsibility by blaming your scathing attack on Mr. Trump on the ideas of a character when you are responsible for all the thoughts and ideas of that character.
I don't believe I'm hearing this, Trey said, showing signs of impatience. I suppose I was naive to expect an interview with a set of writers. Instead, all I'm looking at are reporters. You haven't been writing long enough if you believe characters are incapable of having their own thoughts. Worse yet, I'd bet every person in this room has cried censorship at least once in the face of a First Amendment concern. Well, Senator Hansen thought something. I permitted him the freedom to speak what was on his mind. It was legal, due to privilege, and no one got hurt. Trump is a much bigger man than you guys seem to acknowledge. Several reporters began clamoring to interrupt. I'm, I'm not finished. How many of you remember the body count controversy from a few years ago? You know, the rapper Ice-T formed a hard rock band, delivered a handful of searing, controversial diatribes. Cop killer? One of the reporters said. That's right. I bet you can't name another song on the album. No substantive response. Except some, what does this have to do with, I'll, I'll tell you what. A lot of people, including some police groups right here in New York City, started threatening to sue Ice-T if a police officer was killed and they could link the criminal and the album in any way. The threat went something like this. Thug kills police officer. Thug owns latest Ice-T record. Detectives prove Thug once owned body count. District attorney pleads down the Thug in exchange for his testimony that body count caused the crime. Officer's family sues Ice-T. Well, that's absolutely deplorable. I'm not defending Ice-T. I thought Cop Killer was a banal song that hurt the best the album because it lacked the subtlety of the record's best moments. What I will defend is the right of Ice-T to choose whether or not his character speaks without intimidation. Since Ice-T recognized that the psychopathic character from his album was going to say something, Ice-T had a right, and perhaps even an obligation, not to censor that character's opinion. If the character's view was deplorable, and it was, then Ice-T was doing justice by allowing the character to reveal his flaws. What's your point? The reporter asked. Characters don't always say what writers want them to say, and it's ignorant to presume otherwise. Ice-T's choice was to put him in or leave him out. Changing his cop killer's point of view, though, was never an option. And regardless of the flaws I find in Ice-T's work, I respect the man for recognizing the right of his character to an integrity of opinion. What does this have to do with your play? Uh, not much, Trace said, laughing at his diversion. Except this. I find it funny that the same press that failed to stand up for Ice-T and Body Count then is now trying to pin the same tail on the donkey who stands before you now. His joke received mixed laughter. All this talk about the senator. Doesn't anybody want to talk about his mistress? Frankly, she interests me more than he does. Her motivations do seem significantly more complex, a reporter said, trying to shift gears. Yes, but complex and plainly simple at the same time. He said he doesn't want to marry. He just wants to pop my cherry. Too young to date. I really need it, but I'm too young to date. I gotta have it. What is this? Monica asked. Offended by the song. I think they're called D-Day, Jimmy said. It's an old song. West Coast, if I were guessing. It sucks, she said. It doesn't suck. Too young to date now. It does change it. Change it. Okay. I, I didn't complain through three consecutive songs by Lenny and the Family Kravitz, you know. Well, how could you? They're cool. He's so retro. By that you mean backward, Jimmy said. They mean the same thing. No, one's an insult. 
Why don't you find that new community access radio, she said. AM? No, this is the new one on FM, kind of an FM student station. Jimmy flipped through the channels. He failed at first to find anything but music and commercials. On the way back, though, he stopped near 100, hitting a moderator. Thanks for sticking with us. We are Talk Radio KNEW FM 99. As I said at the top of the show, our program today was organized in part by the local League of Women Voters and the Oklahoma Multimedia Association. We'll be taking your calls at the top of the hour when both panelists will stay to answer questions. For now, though, we return to our debate on sexual behaviors and public policy with Andy Richardson of Focus on the Family's Broken Arrow chapter and Rochelle Lee of the Reproductive Rights Coalition, a local organization. It appeared during the break that you two were shoring up some common ground. That is correct. I think Andy and I do agree with how some of the information about the effectiveness of condoms is being misused in the area of disease prevention. But I I want him to tell it because the argument, and particularly the parachute analogy, is part of Focus on the Family's literature, not mine. Steve, Focus on the Family ran a series of public service announcements and advertisements last year. One was an aggressive attack on the notion of safe sex. Although many in our group feel that conventional wisdom about the danger of AIDS and other big marquee sexually transmitted diseases is highly exaggerative, the majority of us were willing to take the safe sex argument at face value for the sake of argument. We then took the argument that the danger of sexually transmitted disease required the use of condom and other barrier contraceptives to task. Our basic point was that abstinence is the true survival instinct in the face of such a life-and-death threat. Andy and I were talking earlier, but both of us openly questioned whether recommended safe sex techniques would be practiced if one partner knew beyond a doubt that the other partner was carrying the HIV virus. I mean, would you? Well, this this is your discussion. I'm happy letting you two guys answer the questions. All laughed. Okay, I'll put my opinion on the line. I'm a single woman, so I can't and won't speak for what I might do if I learned that my husband was infected. But if I learned that somebody I was dating casually was carrying a potentially fatal STD, there's no way I'd trust my life to a piece of rubber. Rochelle is speaking wisely here. More importantly, though, I think she is speaking honestly. I would be shocked if very many people practicing so-called casual sex wouldn't feel the same way she does if they knew all the facts. What are the facts? The facts we have gathered only measure the effectiveness of condoms in the prevention of pregnancy. And condoms fail anywhere from an unrealistic 10% to a perhaps overblown 30% of the time. I think the figures were one-sixth. Yes, but that's somewhere between 16 and 17%. These figures are acceptable to you, Ms. Lee? Well, certainly for the sake of argument. What my organization added to that argument, I think for the first time on a national level, is that this one in six failure rate measures pregnancy. A woman cannot get pregnant every day of the month. But sexually transmitted diseases don't take a day off. Right. Our argument was that safe sex was being used as a justification for promoting a contraceptive device that probably isn't safe half the time. 
Frankly, I'm surprised at how harmoniously our discussion is going between you two. Does Reproductive Rights Coalition share Mr. Richardson's view of condom ineffectiveness? Well, we do share his concerns. Our reasons include his observation about the statistically significant increase in pregnancies that would be caused by condoms if they were only tested during ovulation. This is why we recommend more than one method of birth control be used in conjunction with barrier devices. More troubling, though, is the fact that a virus, as in the case of HIV, is much smaller, maybe even smarter, if you will, than sperm. A flaw in the condom, or in the use of a condom, that may still block sperm, probably wouldn't block many of the diseases the public health portion of our debate has focused upon. Tell them the parachute story. Our ads were directed to parents, persuading them to oppose condom distribution programs and to dig deeper into the things that their children are being taught. We compared the dangers of immature sexual relations, or, more to the point, sex outside of marriage, to diving out of an airplane. The safe sex crowd is telling our kids that they have nothing to fear if they just use this parachute known as a condom. Even Rochelle's group is very quick to push this parachute as the solution to our fear of skydiving. So all we have to do is make the stretch that unprotected intercourse equals skydiving? It may not be as much a stretch as you imply in some parts of the country. Either way, this inflammatory rhetoric isn't our invention. These ideas are quite amenable to our liberal counterparts. I suppose it is true that most of the protect-yourself rhetoric does come from organizations like Planned Parenthood. And mine. Our point was, what kind of parent is going to let his child go skydiving? in full knowledge of the fact that only five out of the six parachutes on the plane are going to open. To rephrase, how many parents would even entertain the risk of their child plunging to a grisly death in pursuit of a premature and pointless thrill? We embarked on this campaign in hopes of waking parents up. If you believe what you hear from liberals about the dangers of STDs, then how could you be silent about the importance of abstinence? How can you possibly allow something as misleading as a condom distribution program at school to carry on unchallenged? I stand by our campaign. We shouldn't allow the prevailing cultural wisdom, and I use those terms loosely, to trick our children into an act they may not live to regret. Here's why I wanted Andy to tell that story, Steve. I agree that condoms aren't as safe as some people say. I agree that sexual decisions must be made with the kind of careful consideration that only comes with maturity. But I'm not naive enough to think that every child is going to do exactly as he or she is told. In fact, unfortunately, we can presume the opposite is true. So where does that leave us? First, I'll tell you where it definitely doesn't leave us. We cannot afford to pull all contraceptive availability out of our society, not even out of the reach of our children. Focus on the family asks what kind of parents would let a child skydive without knowing the parachute has a solid chance of failing. Well, this is a parents-as-pimps logical fallacy. How? Precisely because it presumes that parents have some magical control that does not exist and hasn't for decades. Parents aren't piloting the plane in your analogy. 
In fact, they rarely, if ever, are fully informed about what experiences their children encounter. It's a fact of life. Most parents aren't even aware that their children are flying at all, much less which flights they take. So where does your argument take us? Well, Focus on the Family asks what kind of parent would let their child skydive. I ask what kind of parent, if the child started skydiving without permission, would tell that child to never, never use a parachute under any circumstances because sometimes they fail to open. It is seriously ludicrous to suggest that any parent would tell his child to take a head-first plunge out of an airplane without a parachute on. That is not what we are saying. Wrong, Andy. It's precisely what you are saying. The effort by groups like Focus on the Family to make sure kids are walled off from any access to birth control information is exactly the same thing as pushing them into a dangerous freefall without even a parachute to use if they cannot stop themselves from going over the edge. Jimmy slowed down his car, changed lanes, and signaled a left-hand turn signal before the light. What are you doing? Monica asked. Dropping by your house. Why? He turned up the radio. Listen for that telephone number, he said. I've got to call that show. Chapter 5 Before we go, you simply have to see this, Chris told Jamie, inviting her in. I thought we were going to the mall. We are. We have to go today, Jamie emphasized. The sale ends today? Well, no, probably not until Friday. But if we want to find anything, we have to go today. We will, we will, Chris assured her. This will only take five minutes. I've set the tape right at the scene I was telling you about. Thirty-something? Yes, you are going to be amazed. This conversation sounds just like you. Jamie sat down as Chris played the tape. The setting is Hope's Kitchen. The conversation begins with Ellen. Did he sleep with her? No. How can you be so sure? They're friends. I've slept with friends. Yeah, did you remain friends afterward? It's usually sort of a North and South Korea kind of arrangement. No further questions, witness may step down. Come on, Hope. It's just you and me and the major appliances. What do you want me to say? I want you to say that there's this one little rogue molecule of jealousy about this visit from the ghosts of girlfriend's past. Say yes. I'll sleep better if you do. She wasn't his girlfriend. Oh, right. Chris stopped the tape and turned to Jamie. Jamie took off her jacket. Rewind the tape. I've got to see the whole thing. I thought you'd say that, Chris said. Then dinner in the mall? Sure, we'll only lose an hour. In matinee, Joe Dante has produced one of the year's most notable non-genre films. Funny in places, sentimental throughout, and boosted by a serious counterplot, the biggest challenge facing this movie is finding an audience. Crowds don't come as homegrown as they did for this film's B-movie Roadshow distributor. John Goodman captures both the charm and spirit of this P.T. Barnum-like traveling promoter. Lawrence Woolsey's latest attraction, Mant, is only slightly less believable than the actual movies that would have been produced by such a distributor. From word and deed, it appears that Dante's efforts, more subdued here than any time in his career, intend nothing more than a contrast between the horror fantasy of a B-movie roadshow and the real-life terror of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Both these events play out for the characters in a South Florida military community. Gene Loomis, a 15-year-old military brat, struggles with his own maturity while worrying about his father's fate in the Caribbean. 
two things distinguish matinee from previous coming-of-age fare. First, the effort Dante devoted to his B-movie within the movie pays comic dividends just when the primary plot loses its wit. Second, the story by Jericho and Charlie Haas points to an evolutionary path toward what would become known as America's sexual revolution. Early in the movie, our young hero discovers the deception of the older generation when he catches Woolsey staging a protest. Throughout the film, the threat of nuclear war, not only to Gene's dad, but to his entire world, hangs over the boy's head. At the climax, the boy and his first date find themselves locked in a fallout shelter, believing that the world is being destroyed around them. Dante does not labor upon these plot points. Noting his characteristic lack of subtlety in movies like Gremlins and Inner Space, it is likely that these truths emerge spontaneously. Nevertheless, Madinet takes the growing generation's point of view. Kids who are 15 in this movie would reach their early 20s during the youth rebellion at the end of the decade. A coincidence? Well, not within the plot. Our hero matures, both by reconciling himself with the deceit of the older generation and by bravely facing his fear that the world may soon end. When Gene and his young friend find themselves alone in the bomb shelter, the question seems obvious. It isn't whether they will shack up together and start a brave new world. No, the only mystery is when. Matinee may be fascinatingly average entertainment. As a social statement, though, the movie reveals a great deal. Far too often, the sexual revolution and other social ills are blamed on the Woodstock generation. No one seems to ask what made that generation different from the previous one, and why such changes should suddenly develop. Matinee posits an answer. In the movie, we aren't even tempted to fault our protagonist if he and his date take advantage of the fallout around them. As with the characters, can we really be surprised by the actions of a generation filled with many kids who were confident they wouldn't live to regret the consequences of their actions? I think not. Nor can we be surprised by the so-called sexual revolution that spread through that era like a fear. Milk. Either 2% or whole. Diet cream soda. Bread. Your choice. Spaghetti sauce. Mushrooms? Pasta. Spinach tortellini. Can be ravioli, but make sure you get the spinach kind so Danny can have Teenage Mutant Ninja Tortellinis for his birthday dinner. Beer nuts. All right, all right. We're going to be jumping around here for the next couple of days, so let me have some undivided attention, and I'll give you a feel for what we're referencing. First, if you have not finished the reading on Shadow and Syzygy from Young's 1948 lecture, make note that you are behind. People, we aren't reviewing this information today. We're applying it. Do not ask me for a summary. Just read the transparencies and do your best. Second, all transparencies come directly from your text, Ion, 1946. This will enable you to follow along directly. Third, and perhaps most important, I will expect your theses first thing Monday morning. On my desk, first thing Monday morning. You can do, as I have done, an example from, quote, real life, unquote, either hypothetical or experiential, or you can pull from literature. Anyone needing an example from literature should refer to last Friday's handout, Willa Cather's Investigation into Paul's Case. I have copies available in my office for anyone who missed Friday. This reading is, of course, optional. Dim the lights, please. Transparency 1. This image is my lady soul, as Spiddler called her. I have suggested the term anima, 
as indicating something specific for which the expression soul is too general and too vague. The empirical reality summed up under the concept of anima forms an extremely dramatic content of the unconscious. The projection-making factor is the anima, or rather, the unconscious as represented by the anima. Whether she appears in dreams, visions, and fantasies, she takes on personified form, thus demonstrating that the factor she embodies possesses all the outstanding characteristics of a feminine being. She is not an invention of the conscious, but a spontaneous product of the unconscious. Young refers to the term soul as general and vague. More to the point, soul is likely inclusive of things we would better be served to ignoring. For the sake of argument, if we proveniently acknowledge the religious implications of, quote, soul, unquote, it becomes clear that Young's phenomenology takes either a restricted view or a dissected view. Depending on your own personal religious convictions, you can take your pick here. Defining our terms, then, as Young does, and does even better in the Zurich Lecture, makes it easy to grasp that anima does not refer to a conscious creation, but rather to a reactive projection of the unconscious mind. In order to apply this information to our coursework, we must dismiss a degree of scholarly skepticism. Anima, as a pure concept, must be restri restricted by definition to a single individual unpersonified feminine form. As such, we know, know, that an anima per se, or for that matter, a real animatic projection, could not be walking the streets of our cities or our fiction. Nevertheless, let's remove those constraints, not have that pre-existing condition in place upon us. We can, simply by granting that this is human nature, to believe on occasion that we see another person who looks just like that girl I knew in grade school. Ignore how simplistic this example is. All of us have shared such an experience. My argument um, is that such a misguided assumption is every bit as valid psychologically as picking that same precise person from memory out of a police mug line to create a vivid example. Transparency 2. Since the anima is an archetype that is found in men, it is reasonable to suppose that an equivalent archetype must be present in women. For just as the man is compensated by a feminine element, so woman is compensated by a masculine one. I do not, however, wish this argument to give the impression that these compensatory relationships were arrived at by deduction. On the contrary, long and varied experience was needed in order to grasp the nature of anima and animus empirically. I don't intend here to be any more sexist than our subject. Note, therefore, ladies, that Young grants the existence of an animus to serve as a correlative to Young's fully explicated anima. So there will be no excuses for not delving deeply, personally, into the topic. For our lectures, though, we are as limited in our focus to female projected images as Jung is in his lectures and writing. After all, Carl was male. To speak with any of the sympathy you'd expect, he would have to pull from his experiences. Naturally, those experiences were projected from anima and not from animus. I want papers from an animatic perspective. You pick the sexual orientation. Transparency 3. Although there are, in my experience, a fair number of people who can understand without special intellectual or moral difficulties what is meant by anima and animus, one finds very many more who have the greatest trouble in visualizing these empirical concepts as anything concrete. 
This shows that they fall a little outside the usual range of experience. They are unpopular precisely because they seem unfamiliar. The consequence is that they mobilize prejudice and become taboo like everything else that is unexpected. Among the challenges you must overcome is the difficulty in making these empirical concepts, as Jung calls them, more or less concrete. Those of you who are dealing with a literary figure will not have the benefit, shall we say, of memory. As a result, you would be well served to read your subject at least twice. Recall high school English coursework when you first learned the difference between context and subtext. Now extend that notion of subtext even further. You are not, I repeat, not seeking the subtext, either conscious or subconscious, of the author. Instead, what you are seeking is solely the subtext, if you will, of the character. Let's not take this point for granted. References to the author should be few and far between. While constricting at first, leaving the author's sketchy details, ultimately will make it easier to ascertain the subconscious and projected unconscious of your subject. Consequently, not only will you be challenged to delve into examples from Ion like the rest of your classmates, you also will have to fully anchor your theories to the details provided by the author. In this manner, you will be avoiding the prejudice that Young refers to from those who view non-aesthetic criticism as taboo. Word to the wise, people. I view non-aesthetic criticism as taboo, so you'd better be able to document whatever conclusions you draw. Transparency 4 Not all the concerns of anima and animus are projected. Many appear spontaneously, in dreams and so on, and many more can be made conscious through active imagination. In this way, we find that thoughts and feelings and effects that are alive in us which we would never have believed possible. Naturally, possibilities of this sort seem utterly fantastic to anyone who has not experienced them for himself. For a normal person knows what he thinks. Such a childish attitude on the part of the normal person is simply the rule. So, no one without experience in this field can be expected to understand the real nature of anima and animus. With these reflections, one gets into an entirely new world of psychological experience, provided, of course, that one succeeds in realizing it in practice. Footnoting will be a limited concern for those of you who choose instead to refer to real life. In that regard, your writing task may be shorter. Do not kid yourselves, though. Your writing process may prove much more difficult. Once you commit to taking an active imagination approach, you become somewhat a victim to whatever unexpected thoughts and feelings that may arise. So while your source material is arguably more cooperative, you will find that you no longer have the anchor of a text. The notion, then Paul did this, will not apply to you. Think about that for a moment. Even if you are telling me a well-documented piece of personal history, you must be prepared for a once-familiar tale to be so altered by an animatic view to create certain doubts. Young mentions here the notion of an individual knowing what he thinks can mean so many, many things. Transparency 5. Recapitulating. I should like to emphasize that the integration of the shadow or the realization of the personal unconscious marks the first stage in the analytic process, and that without it, a recognition of anima and animus is impossible. The shadow can be realized only through a relation to a partner, 
and anima and animus only through a relation to a partner of the opposite sex, because only in such a relation do their projections become operative. We've covered quite a bit of supplemental material, covered a lot of ground up to this point before getting into this project. I cannot stress the value of our preliminary work. Do not put these readings on the back burner, so to speak. You will not function effectively as an interpreter if you are weak in analytic skills. If any of you have wondered up until now whether you were suddenly studying psychotherapy or theological psychology, you will now realize why we took all those detours. I'm not going to limit the focus of your work by saying that only those who practice the ability to recognize animatic projections will succeed in the research portion of your assignment. I don't know that to be true. I do know this, though. If you struggle getting started, branching, for example, from the author's subtext to the character's subtext, or recalling from a memory not what you felt at a specific moment, but what your mysterious stranger felt at that same moment, then the answer to these sticking points lies in the early chapters we covered. Furthermore, a kickstart probably will come from references to shadow more than syzygy. So before you come to me with doubts about how to start, first confront your own shadow. In other words, completely review pages 165 through 167, and also page 174. Lights up. To review, I want you to pull those experiences. Even if you approach the thesis through literary criticism rather than first person, uh, it won't mitigate the fact that you will be drawing from your own perception of how the soul, forgive the expression, projects itself. Are there any questions? Ah, notes, March 15th, Death Penalty Chapter. Uh, cruel and Unusual Eighth Amendment. Strict Constructionist, early examples of death penalty, like uh, Salem Witch Trials. Neoconservative, which is more cruel? Uh, immediate punishment or life in prison? In each case, no parole equals you leave in a casket. Uh, Albert Camus, The Plague, The Stranger. You've read that one. You could use that one. Franklin. Franklin um, wanted to die, asked the judge to impose capital punishment. State didn't have the authority to execute. Which state? Which state? Ask Audrey which state this is. Uh, he ultimately killed two prisoners and a guard. He committed, quote, suicide, unquote. Um, review the chapter. Who was the Arkansas guy who wanted to die? A coalition of churches intervened and delayed. And then Patrick Sherrill, your basic post office shooting spree. Wasn't there a punk band back in high school? Patty Sherrill and the Postmen with their underground single, Neither Snow Nor Rain? Patty Sherrill and the Postmen. And just a derivative Sharon Tate's baby, probably. Uh, Dahmer, found in trial to be sane, but not executed. Who is more likely to face the death penalty? A cannibal or a postal employee on the verge of a nervous breakdown? Clear and present danger standard. Underline that. Clear and present danger standard. This ignores the view of victims and victims groups. Instead, execute only as a means to protect society from a clear and present danger at the hands of a specific type of criminal mind from whom society would never, ever be safe. Does this apply more to Cheryl or to Dahmer? Cheryl. If he doesn't work in another high-stress job, then all's well. Dahmer. If he ever escapes, he would probably kill again. And for that matter, eat again. That's offensive. Audrey, that is offensive. Uh, drawback to the clear and present danger standard comes from Manson case better than any other. 
Since he hasn't been and won't be executed, this death penalty would never be applied in a manner consistent with equal protection. Did he actually commit the murders? Circle that. Did he actually commit the murders? Uh, Test notes, be ready for victim's revenge and that Franklin case. Dear Editor, I cannot begin to tell you how disappointed I was after seeing the movie Matinee, based on the advice of your reviewer, Bob Marshall. He led me to expect something funny. It wasn't. He led me to expect something mature. It wasn't. He led me to expect a serious statement. Well, here's the only serious statement I have to make. Please dump this guy and hire a real reviewer. I'm familiar with the excuse that he is some kind of sociological film critic. Still, his niche approach was tiring enough in reviews of movies I liked. Broadcast news was still entertaining despite his oddball interpretation. With Matinee, Marshall's excesses are inexcusable. The world should expect more. In fact, even if the paper doesn't want to think it can get more out of a reviewer, at least a change would give unsuspecting moviegoers less useless interpretation to wade through in pursuit of entertainment. All I want to know is if the show was enjoyable, a warning about length and offensiveness, and enough storyline to avoid most surprises. I don't want anything more. Sincerely, Teresa Magnuson. Chapter 6 Dear Tiffany, I got your letter last week. I haven't written back to you yet because something has disturbed me. More on that later. First, I have agreed to audit a class for one of my professors this summer. He wanted me for all of summer semester, but I negotiated out of half. Therefore, I probably won't see you until June. Basically, it's a good deal for me. Working with this guy will help me decide whether to pursue a master's degree. Second, my mother ran into your mother in the video store last week. It's possible mom offended her. I don't have many details. If necessary, though, please apologize to your mother on my behalf. From what I gather, the conversation took a turn into the I-don't-know-what-those-two-are-up-to zone. Her implication that you are somehow promiscuous touched a nerve with me, anyway. Hey, before I forget, an Alfred Hitchcock revival is supposed to be coming to town just after midterms. The British have just now exported a couple of movies made for propaganda purposes during World War II. They are short subjects, combining for about an hour total, starring French actors and set in the French resistance movement. I know you like Hitch, and whatever's coming here will surely go to Palo Alto, or perhaps San Francisco. To answer your question, yes, I agree that the political correctness rules of dating are inane, but no... I don't think it's a big deal. If anything, it may increase sexual activity rather than reducing it. Remember that conversation we had last summer about the give the dog a bone technique? Your phrase, not mine. Well, isn't that pretty close to the ask first mentality of the PC movement? Before you answer that, let me confess that I tried it and it worked. I couldn't believe it. I felt like I was acting out a script you had written with just a little bit of may I do this here and some it would be the ultimate if there sprinkled liberally with the I'm embarrassed to ask you and a touch of I don't want to lose your respect and bingo we respected each other in the shower the next morning too. Don't feel bad about it. She's a nice girl and I plan to see her again. I didn't lie to her either. I just caged the truth handily within your scheme. You know, someday the women's Gestapo is going to haul you off kicking and screaming for teaching me that trick. 
They'll strap you down and torture you until you confess the secrets you divulge to the enemy. That's me, the enemy. Joking aside, something you mentioned in your letter has stuck with me in a disturbing way, specifically referring to being bored with alcohol and considering, quote, exploring new means of intellectual exploration. I don't know how to word this. At the same time, I hope that I am jumping to a false conclusion and yet feeling apologetic if I do. To make things worse, I'm not Nancy Reagan, nor would I pretend to be. Nor could I convince you that I was the first lady from hell if I tried, I hope. For the sake of argument, then, let's presume that you are considering experimenting with drugs. This might be fun anyway, even if I'm wrong. We should begin by specifying our terms. Experimenting with drugs. As a statement of fact, could mean nothing more than switching from one a day to one a day plus iron. It could mean trying some kids' Flintstone vitamins. It could mean taking a low-maintenance dose of antihistamine to stave off allergies at the start of hay fever season. These experiments don't concern me. Take the iron. Women need iron anyway. Children's vitamins taken in moderation are harmless. I don't think you have any allergy problems. Nevertheless, I think what we are talking about here are mind-altering drugs. I've always hated that expression, and here I am putting it to use. Oh, well. Let's be sure we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about pot, lewds, mushrooms, cocaine, the whole family of narcotics. You know me well enough to know that I'm not likely to spout off for page after page about the dangers of addiction and the health risks associated with the synthesis of products outside the field of pharmacology. I shouldn't have to tell you anyway, Tiff. The same girl who washed her fruit in the cafeteria water fountain before eating anything off the lunch line surely understands the dangers posed by pesticides and poor health standards of crop producers. And yet, can it be true that the same Tiffany who was then so careful would now consider ingesting something that was intentionally cut with God knows what? I find that hard to believe. I love you so much that I find that hard to believe. This may be an excellent time to emphasize this point. While I branch between the things I'm not going to say about you and the things I most definitely will, let me remind you where I'm coming from. I'm not your father. I don't want to be your father. No insult to Virgil. I just never felt like a parent to you, and I hope I don't come off that way now. No, I love you differently than that. I've always loved you like you were one of my sisters. You know that. I believe you when you tell me that I'm the brother you never had. Well, sis, my advice to you is use your brain. If I were Nancy Reagan, I'd be saying something like, use your brain now because if you poison your mind with drugs, your brain may not work so well ever again. I'm not, I'm not just saying no to an intellectual discourse about the subject like she would. What I am saying comes in two parts. First, why does experimentation with drugs seem advantageous? Second, is there a better way to reach the same goal? There's a guy in my critical essay class who is big time into rap music. Every now and then, he wears this shirt that has a black guy on the front who is smoking a joint. His hair is an afro made out entirely of marijuana leaves. The back of the shirt also is adorned with leaf imagery, and it says something on it about exploring a brand new realm or venture into the next realm or something like that. I suppose it's a popular idea. The notion that mind-altering drugs are actually consciousness-expanding drugs. Along these lines, 
I guess it might be tempting to use synthetic assistance in exploring the depths of the subconscious. For the user, there is, I would say, an illusion that some great truths are being revealed. I sound skeptical of this alleged advantage because I am. Before I detail my reasons for doubting this psychedelic roadmap to a whole new world, I want to pause and emphasize that we are searching here for advantages, plural, to drug usage. I defy anyone to come up with another edge. These, these kinds of drugs will not aid your physical being. Drugs won't lengthen your life. They're an inefficient method of weight loss. You can accomplish that much more cheaply with guar gum derivatives. Spiritually? Well, despite our differences of opinion there, we both know what your Catholic family would say. No, the only substantial argument in favor of drug experimentation is psychological. I may not persuade you initially on this matter. That's because I openly question how much of a trip, so to speak, is the product of the mind and how much is the product of the hallucinogen. Rather than opening up a person's perception, it is quite likely that the drugs cloud our understanding so fully that a mirage of perception is instead created and mistaken for a true vision. If I grant, though, that drugs do somehow bridge a person into a whole new realm of consciousness, then that leads to the second question. Is this the best way to accomplish such a goal? My initial reaction is to just say no, because no one can be sure the illusion caused by being high aren't only the byproduct of the drug alone. In this manner, taking a drug would no more change your perceptions than a carnival's funhouse mirror would suddenly make you tall and thin. My first thought is even my best thought. I guess there are two things that make using drugs a poor method of rising to a whole new realm. One is dependence, and the other is expense. Again, I'm no Nancy Reagan. I'm not talking about committing crimes to maintain an addiction. No. Say that as a casual, once or twice user, you do learn something about your nature that you didn't know now. Fine. What did it cost you? Let's conservatively guess a hundred bucks. For that hundred bucks, you enter into a whole new realm. The next morning, you may recall what you observe within said realm. However, you surely won't recall how you got there. So, how do you get back to the same place to continue your studies? More drugs. Can you guarantee the same drug will take you to the same place? Of course not. In this regard, you would become dependent upon the drug to further your consciousness-expanding experiment. Without it, all you've learned will be lost. At 50 bucks or 100 bucks per experiment, that is a most inefficient system. What makes the drug-enhanced approach seem even more costly and wasteful is how unnecessary it truly is. A sharp, dare I say, brilliant woman like you can get to that same place virtually for free. How? I'd recommend spending a weekend totally alone in your apartment, in a fast, with nothing but spring water to drink, and nothing to listen to except the ambient music of Brian Eno, or perhaps some Gregorian chant. Proper relaxation will clear your mind. If you then fill your time with the writings of Borges, Hesse, Joyce, Faulkner, then you will reach that other realm, or even a significantly higher one. Furthermore, you will remember exactly how you got there because you drew the map. This is a vital point. Drugs are like being blindfolded, tossed into a trunk, and driven several miles to a secret incense-burning hideout. 
By bringing the hallucinatory powers of your own brain to bear upon your experiment, you will be able to easily retrace your steps. Granted, books aren't as glamorous as drugs seem to be. On the other hand, they aren't consumable, and they aren't as expensive. Based on our personal experiences, neither of us has any cause to doubt the inspiring power of the written word. Remember the parallel we drew from our own experience out of the sound and the fury. And Spode, calling Shreve my husband. I'll let him alone, Shreve said. If he's got better sense than to chase after the little dirty sluts, whose business? In the South, you're ashamed of being a virgin. Boys, men, they lie about it. Because it means less to women, Father said. He said it was men invented virginity and not women. Father said it's like death only a state in which the others are left. And I said, but to believe it doesn't matter. And he said, that's what's so sad about anything, not only virginity. And I said, why couldn't it have been me and not her who was unvirgin? And he said, that's why that's sad too. Nothing is even worth the changing of it. And Shreve said, if he's got better sense than to chase after the little dirty sluts. And I said, did you ever have a sister? Did you? Did you? These are the thoughts of a character who is plunging off a bridge to his death. I used that in the class I was telling you about. By using you as an example, I got an A on the first paper we had to turn in this semester. I believe that I was only able to put together my analysis by venturing into a whole new realm of conscious thought. If I'd used drugs, though, I wouldn't have been able to defend my thesis during the oral part of the presentation. Did you ever notice how people who use drugs always have, I don't know, man, answers to basic questions about what they did and how they felt. Their drug-induced state was supposedly too mind-blowing to describe. Perhaps they're right. After all, the experiences has the correlative drawback of being too mind-blowing to remember. What a waste. Tiffany, if you manage to explore a frightening new level of your subconscious mind, I expect you to invite me there the next time we get together. To accomplish this, you must. Must get there without drugs because... Your chemicals will not help me get inside your brain, even if I take the exact same chemicals. I'm asking you this as your best friend. Best friend. There I go again. Look at the length of this letter. This is going to be a scream if you weren't talking about drugs after all. Say, in your next letter, you'll have to let me know when Stanford's out for spring break. We will be out on the 11th. At first, I thought that was too early for me, but now I'm more than ready. Being this far south may explain how we're off so early. Let me know when you're free. Even if your break is after mine, I may drive up and catch you on one of the weekends. We'll laugh about this correspondence then. In the meantime, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Your friend, Scott. KNEW. KNEW FM 99. Lots to cover the next hour, so give us a call. You're listening to the only sports radio program in the country named after me. This is Sports Day Saturday, and I'm Stephen Day, in the big middle of things as usual. We'll be getting to anything and everything this morning. That includes the ongoing Big 8 tournament in Kansas City. Will it be there past 1996, I wonder? Also, prep basketball tournaments are rolling along, as is spring training for Major League Baseball. Give me a call, 460-KNEW. That's 460-5639. How about toll-free? Uh, we're still down, Steve, his engineer said. Looks like another 20 minutes. My understanding is that the toll-free calls won't be getting through until midway through the show. We apologize for this. 
For a nominal Southwestern Bell fee, of course, you can reach us at 918-460-KNEW. There's a question I want to pose to callers today, and we'll get there in just a moment. But first, caller, are you there? Yes. Uh, Did you see the Missouri-Colorado game yesterday? You know, that is one of the integral luxuries of this job. You bet I did. It's my job. That's what I do. Do you think Missouri can still be a number one seed after that performance? I hate to say this, but I really do. You kidding me? Bear in mind that the Tigers could still win the tournament title and completely lock up the Big Eight. They're going to have to play a lot better than they did against the bottom seed without its all-world player. You're right. I didn't expect Colorado to hang in at all without Donnie Boyce, much less hang in so well. So who do you like in the final? I have every confidence in the winner of the Oklahoma State-Kansas game. To me, those two teams are the best tournament teams, so to speak, in the entire league. I kind of like Nebraska. How's that? Well, if they do to Mizzou what they did to the Sooners, are you a Sooners fan? To the bone, Steve. I I sympathize, buddy. We, we've had a tough year. But let me say this. Like it or not, demolishing OU this year is not a stunning achievement. Thanks for calling. All right, our next caller is Gary from Tulsa. Gary, how's it going, Steve? I can't complain, and I wouldn't if I could. What's going on? Who, besides Missouri, do you have slated for the top seeds in the NCAAs? I'm sticking with my guns, Gary. Missouri will stay in the Midwest, Michigan in the West, Arkansas in the Southeast, and North Carolina in the East. Weren't you putting Duke out there last week? Well, yes and no. Last week, and in fact for... The past two weeks, I've reserved that seed for the winner of the recent game between the Tar Heels and Blue Devils. I guess uh, some of my cohorts would still take Duke. They do have an advantage in the polls. Polls aren't as scientific as sports writers would have you believe. What you have to ask yourself, Gary, is whether you could see Duke above North Carolina, the team that beat them twice head-to-head. Weren't you poised to take Duke if they split the series? You bet, if only because of Carolina's other losses. In fact, I would still elevate Duke if they beat Carolina in the ACC tournament this week. So winning one out of three is better than 0 for 2? Obviously. Hey, before I let you go, we're going to be asking callers today for an opinion on the upcoming merger between the Big 8 Conference and the four Southwestern Conference schools. My understanding is that the deal would put millions of dollars into the expanded conference. Right? Then the only losers are SMU, TCU, Houston, and and um, um, Rice. Thanks for calling. Let's make this question a little more specific. I know you already know how the merger is going to affect football. As a matter of fact, football has been the sole focus of the discussion to date. As far as basketball goes, let's hold off on that subject because it'll be more fruitful after teams start dropping out of the tournament in the next few weeks. Instead, let's focus on something that is uniquely important to the Oklahoma schools and the new acquisitions from the Southwestern Conference. Let's focus on college baseball. How do you think this merger will affect college baseball in the new Big 8 Conference? Matt from Sand Springs, what do you think? College baseball? I I haven't thought about it much yet. That's my point. You're not alone. I don't think many of the sports writers or any of the folks from the two conferences have given it much thought. Well, as a fan, it would be great. You know how hard it is to persuade those Texas teams to play up here? I agree, and now the Longhorns will have to play home and home series in Norman and Stillwater. 
I wanted to follow up to your reference to Donnie Boyce as an all-world player. Agree or disagree? Oh, I fully agree. It's scary to think what he might have accomplished for a team like OU. Well, that cuts both ways. Where would the Sooners be now if they had a gutty, gritty, go-to guy like Boyce? Will Boyce be back with the Buffaloes this year, or will he bolt for the NBA? You know, I haven't heard him address that issue. It's possible that he has addressed it. Tulsa's a long, long way from Boulder. And unfortunately, Boyce is such a well-kept secret that the national media hasn't been knocking on his door asking him the same questions they ask of Michigan's underclassmen. If you were his coach, what would you recommend? If I were his coach, stay, stay, stay. Okay, okay, let me rephrase that. If you weren't a greedy, self-serving coach, what would you tell this player about his chances? Well, he's got the skills, but he, he he's got a lack of exposure. And, and the benefit of extra experience, if he came back, it would only improve in his senior year. You know the thing I like best about Boyce? What? I don't know whether to call it class or resiliency. Either way, Donnie Boyce isn't a complainer. And he is in a situation that would justify a lot of whining. He's not winning, but he's not whining either? Exactly. I can't help but think that he must have a strong personal dedication to the program or to his degree. Otherwise, he would have transferred. Either way, either that or Boyce sees some potential next year that the rest of us don't. Thanks for calling. Our number again, only one for a while anyway, is 460-KNEW. Next up is Ray from Salisaw. Steve-O! Hey, only my close personal friends get away with calling me Steve-O. I'm calling you Steve-O because I want our friendly neighborhood bet. This is that Tanya Harding thing, right? Right. Sorry, Ray, I, I didn't know you were from Salisaw. Harding is still free as a bird, Steve. I can't argue with you there. Let's bring everyone up to date. When the Olympics ended, I made the statement that the closing ceremonies wouldn't truly be over until Tanya Harding was escorted into the Portland courtroom in handcuffs. Ray called and told me that he didn't think that would happen. I wagered him that she would be on the receiving end of her right to remain silent before the weekend. You even said the warrant would be waiting for her at the airport. Well, give yourself some credit. Not only did you talk me into backing away from that claim, you ultimately shut me up completely. I accept your surrender, Steve-O. Well, now that we're on nickname basis, Ray, um, how could you be so sure that she wouldn't be arrested yet? Steve, I give grave doubt she'll ever be arrested. You think she's innocent? Hell no, no. She's as guilty as Charles Manson in a more minor way. So why? They, they can't indict her? It isn't a matter of the district attorneys can or can't do. It's a matter of will. They refuse to prosecute the hometown heroine before the Olympics, and I seriously doubt they will have the gumption to do so now. That's one heck of an accusation, Ray. The USOC and I have more than 20 million reasons to believe that the Portland legal system won't burn this witch at the stake. So you think justice would have been better served if the investigation had centered in Detroit, the actual scene of the crime, so to speak? Hypothetically speaking, yes. Why hypothetically? Well, Harding didn't actually commit her crime in Michigan. The conspiracy part was committed in Oregon. Oh, I get it. So if you're right, she's going to skate off untouched. She may even do a triple axel through the statute of limitations, Steve. So what do you think about Big 12 baseball? Nothing. I only called to gloat. Fair enough. Uh, thanks for calling, Ray. You know, Ray's an honest guy. 
The world needs a few more straight shooters like you, buddy. Para Double Diddle. We're back. The number to call if you want to chime in is 460-KNEW. That's 4605639. Janice from Tulsa. It's your turn. I cannot believe you guys are still emphasizing the legal aspects of this Tanya Harding thing. I don't follow you, especially now that the Olympic competition is over. What else is left? My point is that she would have been, she should have been dropped from the team regardless of what the courts had to say. Is this the old no constitutional right to skate argument? Only in part, the other athlete won on appeal because his drug test was actually negative. It is a fact in his case that he was unfairly removed from the team. For Harding, her obvious and fully confessed obstruction of justice was enough to violate the standards of sportsmanship to which she had vowed. While I may agree with you, Ray from Salisaw is right. 20 million bucks will pay for a heck of a lot of ice skates and hockey sticks. It's a lot of money to gamble with after the judges in Portland had fully presented their point of view. I didn't call to recommend the removal of judges from the bench. In this case, though, it would be worth discussing at another time. Oh, we can talk about it now if you want to, Janice. Not really necessary. All I'd say is that part of this ugly puzzle is that decisions about qualifications and eligibility in sports have always belonged to the referees and officials, not lawyers and judges. Well, are you familiar with the Jerry Tarkanian versus the NCAA battles? Vaguely, but, well, with Tark, his... Steve, I hate to interrupt you, but it's like comparing apples to oranges. UNLV's coach was an employee engaged in a labor dispute. Tanya Harding is an amateur athlete. Well, so where does that take us? It's as simple as this. Sports decisions should be made by sports organizations. Why let judges and the courts get dragged into this? It makes me question their competency. Do you think she will be arrested? Either that or sued. If Ray is right, that doesn't stop the USOC or even Nancy Kerrigan from taking civil steps to recover damages from her. That's a good point. That's one that even Ray and I hadn't considered. So what do you think about the inevitable changes in Big 8 baseball? I'm not worried about it. The Cowboys always go down there and play a couple of Texas teams in the early part of the season anyway. It's worked in the past. I'm sure it'll work in the future. Big Pokes fan? Orange power all the way. So you weren't worried that these four new, highly talented teams might interrupt Oklahoma State's unprecedented run of championships? Well, I guess I hadn't thought that far ahead. It's going to be very, very interesting. I thought Kansas made it too interesting last year. Uh, but thanks for calling, Janice. Bill from Sand Springs, it's your turn. Steve? Yes, you are on the air. Steve? Uh, it sounds to me like you aren't looking much past conference play to measure all the impact of these new teams on Big 8 baseball. How do you mean? Look, last year the College World Series was slated with half the teams from this new conference. OSU and KU made it. Texas and Texas A&M made it. That is half the entire World Series from a single conference. Three of the four coming from a single division in that new conference. Wow, you've got me there. I wasn't looking into the prospect of the NCAA tournament in general, much less the CWS. Didn't three regionals come from this new conference too? Stillwater, Austin, and College Station. How often will the NCAA set up that many regionals from the same conference? 
Well, the committee has never hesitated before to give Pac-10 teams that kind of consideration. True, but that has a lot to do with how weak the West overall tends to be. Right. And here we also have Wichita, uh, Arkansas, Louisiana State. It's a lot of competition for four regional sites at the moment. I'll tell you what. If you add Wichita State to the new Big 8 Conference, then you could shorten the College World Series to four teams. Whoever wins the Big 8 tourney deserves an automatic trip to Omaha. Bill, that's the best answer I've heard to our question of the day. But like always, a good answer always raises more good questions. Namely, will this new Big 8 have trouble getting fair representation in baseball's field of 48? Thanks for your call. Next up, Marcus from Tulsa. Hello, Steve. What's on your mind this morning? I wanted to get back to basketball. I think I can explain to Gary and some of your other callers why Missouri will be a top seed next week in the NCAAs. Why? Because we already know they will win the Big 8 tourney Sunday. We don't need to wait for the scores to roll in. What makes you so sure? It's hard to beat even one team three times in a row. Missouri's going to have to accomplish that very task three times in Kansas City. I think we know that Missouri, all Missouri has to do is show up. Uh-oh, it's not. It can't be. It's Conspiracy Theory Saturday. I'm not offering you any conspiracy theories. Aren't you implying that the games are fixed? Perhaps, but to offer a conspiracy theory, I need to have con some concept of how they're fixed. I don't know. What I do know is that something up there smells very fishy. Well, I'll grant you that I've been uncomfortable with a couple of Missouri wins, most notably the intentional foul gift from the gods against Nebraska last week. Well, how about the game in Stillwater? Brooks Thompson gets fouled intentionally on a breakaway, then kicked. He issues a warning to the cheap shot artist who responds, and another Missouri player jumps in and pushes Thompson out of the way with closed fists, if you know what I mean, pushes him out of the way with some closed fists. I'll grant you that one, too. It's hard to fathom a technical foul going solely against the Cowboys there. We haven't even addressed Johnny Orr's concerns. Apparently the Tigers' two games against Iowa State were just as bad or worse. I'm not sure I see a pattern here to this suspect officiating. I can't say I've seen enough to single out one guy or one team of officials. If that foul call against Colorado 45 feet away from the basket in a loose ball situation with less than a second to play can't convince you, then nothing can, Steve. I thought it was a horrible call. I thought it was a wonderful gift. And this tournament's not over yet. Look for Missouri's Christmas in Kansas City to continue for another couple of days. In basketball, anything can happen. If Missouri starts losing to Nebraska, don't be surprised if a Big 8 official in the stands pulls out a high-powered rifle and shoots Eric Piakowski in the head. And you say, you're not a conspiracy theorist. So what happens to Missouri in the NCAA tournament? Another quick exit, of course. Just like years past, Missouri will get unbiased officiating for the first time in months, and they won't be able to limp without their crutch. Fascinating theory, but you know, no 16 seed has ever beaten a top seed. True, true, and that fact may not change, but mark my words, Missouri players, you'd better steal all the stationery and ashtrays you want out of that Wichita hotel room, because you're not moving to the next hotel in Dallas. Gotcha. Thanks, Marcus. We'll... Take a break. Be back in a minute. Up next, we'll turn our attention to spring training. What's that playing? Justin asked Kelly, returning to their desks with two cups of coffee. Listen to this, Kelly answered, turning his radio up to the limit allowed by office etiquette. I know that song. That's Elvis Costello's, right? 
It's shipbuilding, Kelly said. Didn't your band do this one? Well, until we lost our sax player. This is the new Tasman Archer. It's half Elvis Costello songs and half live cuts from the concert supporting her first album. What other songs did she use? Justin asked. They didn't say, Kelly answered, gesturing toward the radio. We used to do a few, Justin said. Uh, Girls Talk, Miracle Man, Accidents Will Happen. Uh, We still perform Man at a Time. That's all pretty commercial, though. More so than shipbuilding, anyway. Well, we also did Big Sister's Clothes. Anyway, which songs would work for you from Elvis Costello if, if you had a band? I don't know, Kelly said, considering the question. Maybe Less Than Zero and Human Hands. Uh, and Two Little Hitlers. That one's already been remade by Todd Rundgren. Please! No, it's true. You need to have a country song, too. Um, a good year? Justin asked. No, I, I'd go with an original, like Different Finger. And a crooner? Shipbuilding. That's already been taken by Tasman. Oh, well, Kelly said, imagining album covers in his head. Then The Long Honeymoon. What's all this about? Darren asked, turning his desk chair to face them. Karaoke? <laughs> Justin laughed. No way, Kelly said. I've never been to a karaoke machine cool enough to include Elvis Costello. They'd just as soon add the Sex Pistols, Justin quipped. Sex Pistols? Darren asked. Did your band ever play them? Kelly asked Justin. Uh, just problems, but I don't think most people even recognized it. If I had a band, we'd play the Sex Pistols, Kelly said. We'd have to find a spot for no feelings, bodies, and In Christ There Is No East or West. The Pistols never did a version of In Christ There Is No East or West, Dustin replied. No, but wouldn't they do a great one? Do they make karaoke for groups like the Sex Pistols? Darren asked. I doubt it, Justin said. Not even God Save the Queen, Kelly added. Thank you. Thank you for shopping at Downtown Parks Mall. We have made every effort to improve your shopping experience so you will enjoy your time spent here. Please let us know what you think of the remodeling in the common area to provide food court seating. Have you ever been to the new food court before? Yes or no? Were you already aware of remodeled seating? Yes or no? Did seating convince you to eat while shopping? Yes or no? Do you plan to return to the food court again? Yes or no? Please rate one for poor to five for excellent. Cleanliness, table capacity, accessibility, restrooms. Which restaurant did you patronize? Please rate your food purchase, one to five. Please provide comments. No postage necessary if mailed in the U.S. Downtown Parks Mall, P.O. Box 23304, Lincoln, Nebraska, serial number 0013244. I'm leaving all of this blank because I'm a mall employee and I might bias the survey. My problem is with the restaurants. We have seven restaurants, some new, some old, yet none of these restaurants are close to potential. This is important to me because I eat in the mall at least three times a week. And yet, despite such patronage, it seems impossible for me to get what I want. Orange Julius has the rights to hot dogs, so A&W, home of the world's best foot-long chili dog, can't serve their specialty. So A&W used their rights to burgers to prevent Taco Tico from serving their best menu item, the Taco Burger. Now, A&W doesn't serve Taco Burgers any more than OJ serves foot-long chili dogs. 
So what are they do? Why are they doing this to each other? The end result is that I can't get my favorite food from any of these places. And as a result, it is rare these days for me to eat at any of them. Now, if each restaurant served its full menu, then each would see me almost weekly. Now, the thought of this, all this power politics, turns my stomach at the thought of eating at any of them, especially when there's a Wendy's across the street. Chapter 7 Tommy had spent most of the morning looking for the perfect glass. He needed a fairly shallow drinking glass with a mouth of at least three inches. More importantly, he needed one that was perfectly clear. No tinting, no ornate decor, no writing. Finally, he settled for a measuring glass. On one side, it was marked for fluid ounces. On the other side, at least, it was perfect for observation. He then placed the materials he needed on the dining room table. Vinegar, vegetable oil, food coloring variety pack, a cotton swab, a teaspoon, a flashlight, and baking soda. Tommy then went to work. Moving the chairs away from one side of the banquet table, Tommy set the flashlight near the center so the beam shined through the measurement side of the glass. He moved the angle of the flashlight and shifted the position of the glass several times before deciding to wash and dry the measurer once again. Tommy had specifically asked for white vinegar, meaning clear vinegar. Although everyone in the house preferred the darker malt vinegar for salad dressings, including him, Tommy had his reasons. He pulled the seal off the new bottle and returned to the table with the clean glass. Once he reestablished the positions of both the measurer and the flashlight, Tommy poured vinegar until the glass was slightly more than one-third full. He sealed the remains of the bottle, then carefully gripping a cotton swab, he dried off the interior of the glass, beginning approximately two centimeters above the fluid level line. He took great care to dry the upper section of the glass without wetting the swab directly with the vinegar. Satisfied with conditions inside the container, Tommy opened the vegetable oil and added a similar amount to his experiment. For a moment, he observed the settling process. Oil and water don't mix, he said to himself. Therefore, oil and vinegar don't mix. Satisfied with the process of separation between the two liquids, Tommy left to dispose of his cotton swab. Entering the dining room on his hands and knees, Tommy could see the progress of his work from the best possible angle. It was color time. To facilitate the timeliness of his experiment, Tommy opened the lids to all four colors. He lined them up with yellow first, then red, green, and blue. His early research indicated that too much blue, even green, would cloud the evidence beyond the illumination of the flashlight. With the yellow dropper, he triangulated three yellow drops in the center of the oily upper layer. Although the pressure of the oil flattened the round drops into a pie-shaped circle, the oil could not disperse the colors. Instead, the drops remained with an integrity within the oil. Tommy paused briefly while switching from yellow to red to make sure this particular vegetable oil was viscous enough to hold the food coloring above the vinegar at the bottom third of the glass. Pleased with his progress, Tommy then created a circle of eight red drops around the inner triangle. Returning to the yellow, he made a similar but larger circle on the outer edge of the glass. The drops settled past the midway point of the measurer, but still within the oil. Some combined to almost twice the original size. Most drifted down as islands, suspended in the translucent liquid. Tommy picked up the green dropper, 
but he dropped to his knees before using it. From the floor angle at the bottom of the glass, the light was off-center. Still, Tommy was able to view the subtle separation between the perfectly clear vinegar and the golden-tinged oil, where the colors were floating. He poised over the glass with green in hand. He pinched the dropper delicately, trying to create the smallest drops he could. He'd learned that the harder the grip of the dropper, the larger the size of the drop. However, through a process of pinching and releasing, it was possible to squeeze out very tiny samples. What are those? Louisa asked, intruding where she was not welcome. Hush, Tommy answered. He created a cross of five, three vertical, two horizontal, with the green drops of various sizes. What are you making? Louisa whispered. Cells, Tommy answered. That's not cells. That's food coloring. No, it's cells. No, she responded, taking a tone of voice. It's Easter egg stuff. It's Easter egg stuff, he said, mocking her expression, when we dye Easter eggs. Now, though, it is cells. Louisa watched as Tommy held the blue dropper at a higher level than he had previously tried and indiscriminately scattered about a half dozen blue drops. If you want to help, he said, you could put the tops back on these colors. I don't want to help. I don't want to get implicated in any way. Then shut up. If I, if I help you out, then I'll get blamed too. Shut up. Tommy kneeled again at the edge of the table and carefully observed the formation of the drops. He was pleased that the colors were still afloat in the oil, leaving the vinegar clear. Get blamed for what? Tommy asked Louisa. For whatever trouble you're about to cause. I'm not causing any trouble. I'm conducting an experiment. What is it? She asked. Healthy. That's what it is. It's healthy. Tommy opened the box of baking soda and stirred it with his spoon. Once satisfied he had sifted the powder, he scooped a shallow layer into the spoon. Holding the spoon just above the glass, Tommy put his fingernail in the middle of the powder and separated about a third of it to the edge. Moving the spoon right to the surface, he pushed this isolated concentration directly into the center of the oil. The rest was sprinkled lightly over the entire surface. After putting the spoon back into the box, he quickly moved to eye level. Just as he had hoped, the large concentration of powder was formed into a ball by the consistency of the vegetable oil, while the lightly sprinkled surface elements remained mostly afloat. The larger concentrate slowly but surely sank into the core of colors. It rested momentarily on top of the indistinguishable cells of yellow and red, and then it sank into the vinegar. The reaction was, of course, immediate. Even his sister was fascinated by the results. Tommy watched across from the flashlight as carbon dioxide bubbling up from the bottom level started to wreak havoc upon the cells suspended in oil. A large gaseous mass of foam pushed its way up through the center of the oil, picking up colors along the way. The turbulence on the surface pushed colors down into the vinegar as well. A foamy combination of oil and bubbles was brewing, both on the bottom level and the surface, leaving Tommy's view of the oily center unabated as colors mingled with the vinegar below and floated to the surface. The smaller particles of baking soda floating down from above maintained the strength of the reaction as they mingled with the vinegar. The cells are exploding, Tommy noted. You can still see the circles, Louisa said. Both were right. Within the oil, the circular shape of the colored particles were preserved. 
Above and below, though, stormy activity was spinning tornadoes into the viewing area. As in the previous experiments, the colors created a frame above and below the oily center that was too dark to view even through a flashlight. Soon after, Tommy concluded that the reaction had reached its peak, and he again dipped the spoon into the baking soda. Rather than distributing the powder throughout the shallow surface of the teaspoon, Tommy bunched a similar amount on the tip. Then he watched and waited as the continuous movement slowed. What was that? Louise asked. Tommy couldn't tell whether she was impressed by his experiment or merely mocking it. Malignancy, he answered. You're the malignancy, she said. You don't even know what that means. Tommy dropped the contents of the spoon into the glass. The strength of the remaining vinegar caught him by surprise. The mix quickly overflowed the glass, spreading vinegar, oil, and food coloring off the side of the table. Mom's tablecloth, Louisa said. First the carpet, Tommy said, agitated but concentrating on the task at hand. I'm telling, Louisa said. Shut up, I can fix it. Mom, Mom, she cried. I told you I can fix it. I'm telling. Mom, Mom, what's going on? Danny asked. Looks like we need features in the city, then we're ready, the secretary said. Thanks, Beth. You'd better give Terry a call. Tell him it's about time to break away. What's up, boss? The publisher asked him as they entered the adjoining conference room. Single issue day, boss, Danny said. Andrew Logan was a short man, athletically built and corporately dressed. This daily meeting was often his only direct contact with newsroom decision making. Hello, Sandy, Logan asked, greeting the opinion editor. Hello. What's up with you, Chris? Sunday. Sunday's section? He asked. Just the routine stuff, she answered. Engagements, weddings, divorces, Danny interrupted with a laugh. In that order, one would suppose, Logan added. Terry rushed into the room with a clipboard under his arm and a pen in his mouth. He immediately reached out his hand to shake the publisher's hand. Good to see you, Terry. Good afternoon, he said. Let's get this thing started, Danny said. Features? Something about sports, actually, Chris said. Where are those guys? Danny asked. Bill is starting baseball. Mitch has gone to Dallas, Terry said. Mitch has got a local boy makes good story, and we've got the parents, Chris said. Who's the kid? One of the freshmen at Arkansas. They've advanced in the NCAA tournament to Dallas, Chris said. Sweet 16, Logan added. They play Tulsa tomorrow. His parents have never seen him play in college, Chris said. They tried to get tickets to the opening round of games in the city, but that had been sold out for months. I don't know how, but they have seats in Dallas for Friday. Does page one get a piece of the action? Danny asked. Yet to be determined, Terry said. It's fine with us, Chris said, if we get the jump. Let's go with the color picture from tonight's games. Low and on the front, jump into features. Anything else? Danny asked. Companion travel piece, springtime in Big D. What about Sunday? Logan asked. We're starting early on the Country Music Awards. Reba's hosting, Chris said. Reba McIntyre? Sandy asked. Local girl makes good chapter 12, Terry answered. Does anyone know the sports lead? It has to be the NCAA tournament. The prep baseball is all preview type stuff. What about opinion? Logan asked. I'm still wrapping up changes in the free speech column, Sandy answered. The offensiveness one? Yes. You're still sticking with it, right? Danny asked. Yes, it will still serve as a reminder that the First Amendment was written only to protect offensive speech. The premise is that no one would have seen a need to protect speech that nobody considered offensive, Sandy said.
The changes are going to be cosmetic, Logan said. I just felt we should keep the emphasis political here rather than social. Less two live crew, more Rush Limbaugh, Sandy said. Yeah, the idea is the same. Offending someone or a lot of someone's is not protected by the Constitution for regrettable reasons. It is protected for strict constructionist reasons. Terry shook his head, a response that made Logan laugh. What about the editorial column? Danny asked. I'll need some help there, Sandy said. We've been putting off this North Korea thing for too long now. Nuke em, Terry said. Danny and Logan laughed. I'm serious. Let's nuke those bastards before they nuke us. Danny and Logan continued laughing. Clinton's not going to start a war, Sandy said. Who's talking about a war? He could push the button without sending any troops, Terry replied. Have we exhausted all diplomatic options at this point? Chris asked. Everything's at an impasse, Sandy answered. The North Koreans won't allow full inspections. Defending South Korea makes us sitting ducks. A guaranteed Chinese veto makes the uh, UN powerless. Nuke em, Terry said. With all due respect, Logan interrupted, we aren't running a column advocating anything like a war. I think we are still in an explanatory phase here, Danny added. So we should concentrate on suggestions for keeping North Korea in the compact, Sandy asked. Let me get this straight, Logan said. They are signed on to a treaty against nuclear proliferation at the present, but they won't consent to routine verification. Some of the verification may be slightly more aggressive than routine because of the posture the North Koreans have taken, Sandy said. I've got a question, Danny said. To what degree can we claim that North Korea is genuinely signed on the dotted line here? It seems to me that they have agreed to a non-proliferation treaty as long as they reserve the right to violate that same treaty at will without repercussions. I'd say that's an accurate assessment, Terry said. So why are we treating them like anything other than a renegade nation, Danny asked. So far, the administration's approach has been A. Maintain North Korea's membership in the agreement. B. Take steps to knuckle them under on a cordial diplomatic level. Should we be treating them like a renegade third world nation? Sandy asked. Nuke them, Terry said. Aren't they in fact acting like a renegade nation? Danny replied. I mean, they aren't manifestly signed to the treaty in light of their actions. Why should we treat them as though they are members in good standing? I agree, Logan said. Let's go without specific recommendations. Instead, use the editorial column to point out this inconsistency in North Korea's position. Then we can recommend that the UN start treating them like renegades rather than allies. I still say we nuke them, Terry said. That's next week, Sandy said with a laugh. What are we going to do, and when, about the AIDS kid? Terry said, returning to a serious demeanor. You tell me, Sandy replied, deathly serious herself. Problems? Logan asked. Yes, we don't know enough about the case to editorialize one way or the other. What's the latest from Duncan? Danny asked Terry. Vicky is meeting with the parents group that is forming. We should have page one copy whether a protest breaks out or not, Terry said. Protesting what? Logan asked. The city state board has concluded that the kid is fit to attend school. We are sure that will have an impact on the community. Did we cover that meeting? Closed session, Danny answered, taking Terry off the hot seat. It's all legal to protect the privacy of the kid. I think Sandy's right, 
We can't write about this until something definitive happens one way or the other, Logan said. You don't call this kid attending classes definitive? If you live far enough out of town, he could be sitting in a classroom next to your daughter, Terry said. Well, how did he get AIDS? HIV, Sandy corrected. He's just carrying the virus now. Do we know how it was transmitted? Ask Terry, Sandy said. News knows quite a bit that they aren't sharing with the rest of us. Terry? We are holding on to some details until we tie up all the angles. Even if we don't report the family's name, we are still sitting on a potentially dangerous story here, legally speaking. Do we know how this kid got the HIV virus? Logan asked Danny. No, he said. I think that's the worst part about it, Sandy said. If there's going to be hysteria, then the big mystery is the most inflammatory factor. Listen, Terry said, we aren't ready with this yet. And I don't think we need to be fanning any emotional fires, Logan added. All we know is that on the record, he hasn't been sodomized, he hasn't had any blood transfusions, and he hasn't been to the dentist in over a year. 7.30 a.m. Pink Panther Cartoon. Episodes include Extinct Pink. 8 a.m. Movie. Comedy. Who Was That Lady? Dean Martin, Tony Curtis, and Janet Lee star in a freewheeling farce. Martin talks Curtis into posing as a government agent after wife Lee catches Curtis embracing another woman. Based on the play. You sounded so upset that I had to come over, Valerie said. Come in, Peter said. Where's Susie? She's down, fell asleep before I called you, in fact. What's wrong? It's Melanie. Pete, Pete, she said imploringly. I don't blame you for thinking that I should have put all this behind me months ago. Valerie ran her hand through the hair above his neck and started rubbing. More like weeks, Peter. Seven months isn't forever, you know. You're overcoming quite a lot. It's not so much her death, though. Is it your boy, then? Um, um, Clint. We were going to call him Clint. Susie's all right? Yeah, she's doing better than I am. So is it Clint? No. Peter started crying. He fought the initial teardrops, but soon gave in to the sobbing. Valerie dropped her coat and hugged Peter closely. You're going to have to say it, she told him softly, because I don't know what's wrong. I'm not sure, he said, fighting to regain his composure. I'm not so sure I know either. Valerie waited quietly. I was thinking about the house today, comparing taxes from this year to last and adjusting for the insurance. I thought you said her policy left you secure. That's just it. We are secure. We don't have to sell the house. So what's wrong? Little things. It's just a bunch of little things. Peter followed Valerie to the kitchen. She poured him a glass of water and fumbled in her purse for a tissue. I haven't been happy with work lately. Maybe it's just me, but I wasn't very happy with the way the board handled my leave. Plus, I'm not feeling the same spark. Not there, not anywhere. And the house? Part of me feels like it might be time to, I don't know, move on. 34 is not too old to change career directions. Finances might not be this secure next year. Susie starts school in just over a year. 
there are a lot of good reasons to shift gears, cash in the house, try to move away from my problems, maybe move into some new problems. How far away? Peter smiled. Not out of your grasp, I assure you that. Have you talked with Susie? No, I thought about it for the first time this weekend. Anyway, how how is she supposed to understand? What about your family? No, uh, after Mom died, Dad hasn't exactly been a fountain of information. Melanie's parents are on top of things, but I, I just wouldn't feel comfortable. Granted. Peter started crying again. These are decisions that I used to make with, with Melanie. How can I possibly get on with my life without her to point the directions? Valerie's eyes started to well, too. Mel and I used to just, I don't know, bounce these kinds of ideas off of each other. I'm here, here today and any other time. Can I help? It's her house, he said. Him. They'll know we are Christians by our love, written by Schultes. We are one in the spirit. We will work with each other. We will walk with each other. All praise to the Father. We are one in the Lord. We will work side by side. We will walk hand in hand from whom all things come. We are one in the Spirit. We will work with each other. We will walk with each other. All praise to Christ Jesus. We are one in the Lord. We will work side by side. We will walk hand in hand, His only Son. And we pray that all unity and will guard each one's dignity and together we'll spread the news, and all praise to the Spirit may one day be restored and save each one's pride that God is in our land, who makes us one. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Scripture readings. Ezekiel 34, verse 17. Now then, my flock, I, the Sovereign Lord, tell you that I will judge each of you and separate the good from the bad, the sheep from the goats. Luke 15, verses 4 through 7. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. What does he do? He leaves the other ninety-nine sheep in the pasture and goes looking for the one that got lost until he finds it. When he finds it, he is so happy that he puts it on his shoulders and carries it back home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says to them, I am so happy I found my lost sheep. Let us celebrate. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine respectable people who do not need to repent. Sermon, the least of these, Dr. Calvin Hunter. Right up front, I want to thank the, the Lord God for the musical blessing we have received today particularly the secular song by Steve and Jerome. It's blessing enough that our youth should be so talented. Their desire to share those gifts is worth even more. I mention their song because I think the words that Stephanie Davis wrote for, I believe, Garth Brooks? Garth Brooks says quite a bit to our ministry today. Let me quote, Lord, please shine a light of hope on those of us who fall behind. And when we stumble in the snow, will you help us up while there's still time? The answer to this question is contained in the gospel reading today from Luke. 
Not only will the Lord God help up those of us who get lost along the way, but he rejoices at doing so. Jesus and Paul after him constantly emphasized to his disciples that worrying about the mundane and the ethereal was not desirable. Jesus taught that God would provide our needs both in this life and afterward. Instead, he wanted his followers to devote their attention solely to the ministry. In this regard, there is a calling. Yes, on the one hand, God will provide for us in our hour of need. On the other hand, he expects us to do likewise for our fellow man. The character in that song promised the bankrupt family that he would check on them when he got into town. Jesus' parable implies that it is incumbent upon the shepherd to seek out the lost sheep. For Jesus, it is obvious, a plain and simple fact of being a shepherd. How strongly does the Lord feel about this matter? Well, to answer questions about the judgment of God, we need only ask ourselves what will happen to those who do not heed his word. Ezekiel faced questions such as this. And God revealed to him the answer. At the day of judgment, the sheep will be separated from the goats. Jesus further defined the difference between a good sheep and a bad goat before his betrayal in Matthew's Gospel. Reading from chapter 25, starting with verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep at his right hand, and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, O blessed of my father, inherit the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see thee hungry and feed thee, or thirsty and give thee drink? And when did we see thee a stranger and welcome thee, or naked and clothe thee? And when did we see thee sick or in prison and visit thee? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these of my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. And in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, when did we see thee hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to thee? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it not for one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. May God bless the reading of his holy word. 
Biblical historians refer to Matthew chapter 25 and verses 31 to 46 as the great judgment. Jesus tells us that we will be judged by our willingness to help our fellow man. Not only those who have fallen in the snow, but the hungry and thirsty, the stranger and shelterless, the sick and imprisoned. An often ignored element to the great judgment is this emphasis on the least. In each example, Jesus enunciates his expectation that we will help even the least of his brethren. Just prior to the new school year, two of our women's circles attended a conference in Kansas City dealing with urban violence. I met with them afterward. In the midst of workshops on gang violence, domestic violence, street drug-inspired violence, etc., etc., a common element had emerged. Hatred. Our women came back with a strong sense that our society's problems aren't getting too large to handle. No, they already are too large to handle. There is nothing I can say this morning, and there was nothing a hotel full of speakers could say last summer to make the gang problem disappear. There is, on the other hand, a great many simple and easy tasks each and every one of us can handle morning, noon, and night. There is a great deal we can do to tackle the root cause of all our evils. Hatred. Easier said than done, right? I understand that reaction. It is easy to say that we are going to start loving and forgiving one another. However, it seems to be quite a leap for most groups, even most religious groups, to accomplish. I know this is true because we asked. Come on up here, Hannah. I want to introduce you all to Hannah Strom. For any in the congregation who don't know Hannah, she is an officer in the Ruth Circle here at the church. After meeting with her group, we decided that we could learn a great deal by conducting a simple survey. Our goal was to contact a variety of groups, most of which identified themselves with a mandate from God. Hannah? Thank you, Reverend. We asked a variety of questions. Most of them asked for a name or identification of a person the respondent most wished were dead, transformed, or never had been born. We wanted to know who they thought was the most reprehensible person alive and how strongly they desired the elimination of that individual. Of course, we had hoped that most groups would stop short of a hit list. We were disappointed. The following groups identified the following individuals as being, more or less, Unworthy of forgiveness. Pro-Life Action Committee, Dr. Ross Shelton. Anti-Defamation League, Nation of Islam. NAACP, David Duke. ACT UP, Gay Rights Group, Reverend Fred Phelps. He's based in Kansas. Family Values Coalition, the Gay Rights Crowd. Some groups could not be reached. We didn't have a way of contacting the Ku Klux Klan, for example. A couple of the politically oriented groups we contacted named the president. As you can tell, some of the ones who talked to us at length were capable of picking out a particular individual. Others weren't. In the case of the Monroe Family Values Coalition, they did get more detailed than merely identifying uh, gay rights activists, but never as specific as naming an individual or an organization. Hannah, how specific did they get? 
Well, Reverend, they were uh, they were particular enough to describe a hypothetical gay rights activist who carries the HIV virus, uh, lobbies Congress to divert research monies to AIDS, and organizes a grassroots effort to amend the Constitution to grant protected status for homosexual orientation. Thanks both to Hannah and to all the women of the Ruth Circle. The good Lord calls us to a task that is by no means easy. Admonishments like turning the other cheek pose a daunting challenge to the soul. If you doubt the ease and simplicity of striking out at the problems we encounter, then watch the evening news or read the Sunday paper. For most people, striking out is preferable to walking the extra mile. In the Great Judgment, Jesus ups the ante further. He isn't asking us to forgive and console an enemy. He is asking us to do so for the enemy. The least of these. The least of these. I suppose it's only natural to conjure an image of a homeless mother and child. Through our regular offerings and special annual offerings, we probably do find a way to indirectly touch the lives of that anonymous mother and child. But I would like to challenge that perception. Who truly qualifies as the least of these for our local chapter of the NAACP? A resident of the parish homeless shelter? Or David Duke? Don't most pro-lifers honestly feel the same way about Dr. Shelton? There is an abortion-performing doctor in Pensacola, Florida, so despised by national pro-life groups that a man shot and killed him last year. More recently, a similar assassination was attempted in Wichita, Kansas, the community served by one of our sister congregations. Whatever a member of the local committee may say about the least of these being a sympathetic figure like a cancer patient or a crack baby, I think we all know who they feel is the least among us. I prefer not to criticize another minister, even from a different denomination. However, I'm not particularly shocked that the notorious Reverend Fred Phelps is known throughout the heartland by gay rights groups. He pickets the funerals of AIDS victims. He writes and faxes some of the most hateful letters a grieving family could possibly read. I don't doubt that gay activists would consider Phelps to be the least among us. He hasn't been bashful about pointing an accusing finger right back at them. The war of words between Jews and Muslims wages even in our country. Again, it seems obvious that each group would gladly designate the other as the least among God's brethren. The example I would like to use, though, comes at the expense of the Family Values Coalition. I'm taking this example for two reasons. First, this congregation supports a portion of their agenda. We have worked with a similar group in Richland Parish even more closely. In this manner, we can self-righteously criticize ourselves. Second, I think the actions and words of Jesus Christ have particularly strong application here. Let's be honest with ourselves now. I'm not calling for a show of hands so you don't have to worry particularly about being honest with one another. I do challenge you, though, to be honest with yourself. For our purposes, let's say that we have been called to visit a patient in the hospital. Is there a disease that we would hope above all others 
is not being carried by this patient? Am I wrong? Or does AIDS change the entire tenor of a caregiving hospital visit? What if the same patient is on medical release from prison, where he is serving a term for sex crime offenses? I'm sure gay rights groups could tell stories about the stereotype we've been sold about the purported relationship between homosexuality and sex crimes. What if our mission with this AIDS-inflicted bedridden criminal was not moral support so much as physical support? What if we were asked to feed this person? What if we were asked to change this person's clothing? You see... It is easy enough to sit in judgment of the NAACP for their struggle to forgive the hatred of a politician like David Duke. On the other hand, each and every one of us has a least of these in our hearts that would probably make us more uncomfortable than holding the bleeding hand of a dying AIDS patient. I've heard some people say in the course of the debate about AIDS research that the standards set by Jesus don't apply in this instance because Jesus wasn't dealing with AIDS in his day. Let me get this straight. Jesus, in his day, supposedly didn't encounter a horrendously fatal communicable disease that was feared by all and believed to be inflicted predominantly upon the morally deficient people. The Bible calls it leprosy. If AIDS patients aren't the lepers of our society, then the reason is that AIDS isn't as feared today as leprosy was in Jesus's day. Jesus healed lepers. He prayed with lepers. He forgave lepers of their sins like many of the others he encountered in his ministry. Without judging the political motives of groups who successfully exiled lepers, Jesus was, nevertheless, telling them that God would judge their righteousness not based on the love they showed for the person across the street, but for the love they showed to the person so lowly as to be banished from the community altogether. The least of these. As you did it for one of the least of these, you did it to me. The same Christ who is eager to help up sinners as unworthy of his grace as all of us are only asks that we go and do likewise. It seems so simple. As long as a donation here and a pledge there will make the problem go away. But the Lord is asking us personally to feed, clothe, and visit the women of this congregation have helped open our eyes to the challenge we face in evangelism. You see, the groups they interviewed consider themselves to be religious groups in one manner or another. It seems to me that those who have pledged themselves to serve the Lord have as much trouble following through as we imagine the unbelievers would. In our hymn today, we pledge to be one in the Spirit and to walk and work together with all Christians to spread the word of God. Yet I wouldn't doubt that the challenge we've set for ourselves this morning as a congregation would be less than well received by many of our fellow Christians. I suppose that our prayer for all unity to one day be restored may have to begin with the church before we go out and save the entire world. As Christians, we don't always work together. Walking side by side is a sporadic event. Yet, for the most part, 
The least of our brethren is a common factor to us all. The Reverend Glenn Daniels was here a little more than a year ago. Some of you may remember his sermon. One of the things he preached that still remains strong in my memory was talking about our habit of labeling people and our strong desire to separate out the winners from the losers. I expected him to take the approach that all ministers do, that judgment should be left unto the Lord. Instead of judge not lest ye be judged, though, Glenn turned the problem into an ends versus means argument. He asked us if sinners needed to hear the word of the Lord. He asked us if God calls upon us to forgive. He asked if there is a sin or a crime or an individual that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is incapable of redeeming. Then he said this, If we exclude sinners from the house of the Lord in response to the sins they have committed, we are casting them out of God's house without any consideration of what the will and grace of the Lord may be. We complain about godlessness. You hear it all the time. When we talk about the breakdown of morals in our society, we talk at least as much about the lack of faith as we do about sin in general. However, the words of the Reverend Daniels calls to my attention a great irony. Are we not, in fact, blaming the godless for their very godlessness? I think so. Lord, forgive us, but I think so. Much like blaming a starving man for being hungry, or blaming a freezing man for being cold. We Christians are missing our calling by paying too much attention to the assignment of blame. When we exclude a person for being a sinner, then we create his godlessness. Every time we take a sin, like sodomy or adultery, and use that sin to block the sinner from the very words that will bring him salvation, we create the godlessness. Far too often, these exclusions have nothing whatsoever to do with sinning in the first place. We have played a part in creating godless people simply because their race or their politics happen to be different from ours. If I saw a man who was starving to death and I wanted to do for my Lord as Jesus taught in the great judgment, then I surely would give him some food. If that same man was freezing to death from exposure, I would give him the coat off my back until I could find him some shelter. The example applies to the sinner as well. What does a godless person need to cure his ills? Well, the very same thing that every sinner needs to recognize the salvation offered by Jesus Christ. We have lost sheep roaming the hills of our society. Worse yet, a great many of those lost sheep have been kicked out of the flock by misguided shepherds like you and me. Herders who mistakenly believed that the flock would be better off without one lamb or the other. Jesus has made his instructions to us very clear. Not only are we charged with the responsibility to seek out the lost sheep and return them to the flock at all costs, more, we are expected to rejoice with every success. Every time we can serve God's salvation unto the least of our human brethren, we absolutely must. And as a congregation gathering in Jesus' name, we must prepare ourselves both for the challenge ahead and the celebration to come. 
Let us pray. Chapter 8 From the desk of Ryan Brundage to Trey Arthur regarding Teen Chastity Peace. I think you've got a live one here, buddy. I really do. However, let's not limit ourselves to the family mag market, okay? Save what you've done. I'm not recommending changes at this point. On the other hand, I think your story is missing some pieces if you want to go for a wider audience, which, by the way, I think you should. Fear not. You can interview the same sources. It would be better to maintain a continuity there. Anyway, all I'm looking for is an additional rewrite that pursues some other angles. Specifically, I have three things in mind to fill in the gaps on this willing-to-wait trend spreading through high schools and junior high schools. One, what is sex? Not a stupid question. I repeat, this is not a stupid question. These kids are vowing to abstain from sex until marriage. Fine and dandy. But what do they mean by sex? Are they specifying intercourse? Do they include oral sex? Are they abstaining from masturbation? And if so, I think we should be asking more questions. Grant me this much, please. My mother strongly, I mean strongly, objected to my kissing girls goodnight on their front porch because of what the neighbors would think. You're practically having sex on the front porch, she once said. Taking my experiences as a given, do goodnight kisses qualify as sex? Let's find out what these kids think they're giving up. 2. Why do the adults organizing these pledge drives think that this program will suddenly supersede safe sex education? Thought I wouldn't notice that, didn't you? How can a writer who has stood so firmly in the past in favor of diversified approaches to social education let this go unchallenged? For crying out loud, Trey, you've got this guy in your story saying that willing-to-wait programs will mark the elimination of condom distribution programs. I'm not saying you have to call this guy on the carpet. Just do the same thing you did during the presidential campaign. Ask him whether he believes that all children learn about the world in exactly the same manner. Then ask him if birth control education isn't a valuable safety net to have around after all. That's it. No need to be nasty about it. In fact, if you want to maintain the family mag market, it would be better if you were subtle. 3. Haven't parents always maintained that kids are too young to make wise sexual decisions? The coordinator could address this question, but I'd rather hear what mom and dad have to say. Lead them through the logic. If youth have always been too young to make decisions about sex, then what makes this generation of children so different? Just because this group happens to be deciding against having sex doesn't change the fact that parents are now granting them the intellect to make their own decisions about whether to have sex. This is an absolute reversal of all our traditions. For conservatives, this has to be a disturbing retreat from dogma. It isn't enough to say that these kids are wise enough because they are making the, quote, right choice, unquote. If that were true, then it would be obvious that choice has nothing to do with it. Only one answer, the right answer, is getting rubber stamped. My skepticism is based around the pendulum theory. What is going to happen when these same kids start breaking their contracts like major league ball players once they've spent a couple years on the college campus? I'm not saying every kid is destined to break his vow. 
I'm not even saying that half of them will. What I'm suggesting is this. A lot of emphasis is being placed on the validity of promises being made by kids to parents who, themselves, do not believe their children are mature enough to make such a decision. Follow that trail. We shouldn't query until we know these answers, whether we choose to use them or not. We'll need to move quickly, though. Copy me by Friday. Darkness sets in. I don't like being wrong. I'm insecure about that. And if this whole scenario were staged, it would hurt for reasons other than deception. I don't like being the fall guy. To handle the distance, what will I have to give up? And what will be the cost? Anyway, what's my real perception of past events? What if I'm wrong in my view? I'm afraid. I'm also afraid to be afraid. Note, this is not a good time for reality to explode. But I've looked into the future. And I don't see any possible worlds at all. I'm just afraid to be without you forever. While I'm afraid to be hesitant, I'm still afraid to say what I mean. Am I all right? I honestly don't know anymore. And I need to hear it if it's true. Tell me what you need to know. I'll tell you. I'll tell you the truth. I will because it matters more to me than it could to you. Does being so far away make me seem less normal, less lovable, less you? Alejandro Scati, an early 20th century philosopher from Spain, suggests that the key to our vague notions of right and wrong are simply questions of truth and virtue working together. As human beings, a great many of us consider our life's work to be a quest for truth. Not just philosophers, but many journalists, politicians, and lawyers certainly fall into this pit. The false assumption most of them make is that truth is somehow elusive, distant, concealed. Their truth must be tracked down, captured, and unveiled. Scottie deferred. He believed the truth was, in fact, wandering around us all the time. Scottie's view of truth was a paradox of ubiquity and invisibility. Yet, the philosopher insists, making so-called right decisions depends upon proper use of knowledge to ascertain our options and then employ that knowledge effectively. To Scottie, truth is a full understanding of what can be known, and virtue is the appropriate use of that knowledge. This brings us to the two questions. First, by what means do we learn? And second, how can we use our knowledge to solve our problems? Humans learn through four methods. Empiricism, radiocination, intuition, and faith. Empiricism is the most basic. I know it because I saw it. Empirical knowledge is a product of observation. I saw Conan eat the red berry, then fall over dead. Therefore, I know that red berry to be poisonous. Radiocination is simply the exercise of reason. I know it because it makes sense. Radiocination is credited most often with separating man from other animals. This red berry comes from the same kind of tree as the berry that killed Conan. Therefore, this berry also must be poisonous. Intuition is the introspective knowledge of the self. I think, therefore, I am. Intuition permits the higher forms of thought 
because it opens the mind to a dialogue with self. The voice telling me that these red berries are dangerous is not the voice of a stranger or of God, but myself. This is me saying these things. Faith is the intuitive knowledge of God. God's existence is necessary for my existence. At the same time we recognize our own voice, we also realize that the voice predates our ability to create. Our self stems from a larger, necessary state of being. Not only did I not plant the tree that grew the berry that killed Conan, I also did not plant myself. As I prove my existence to the satisfaction of myself, I thereby prove the existence of God. Human beings employ the methods of learning differently. We likewise are individually unique. Once knowledge is gathered, it can be applied through two options, deontology and teleology. Deontology is a means approach. We take action out of a sense of duty to do what is right. I warn everyone in the tribe about the berry that killed Conan because it is the right thing to do if I value living in a society. Teleology is an ends approach. We take action designed to produce a proper and desirable result. I warn everyone in the tribe about the berry that killed Conan because I would struggle to survive without the help of others who would die if they ate the same berry. Scotty does not make value judgments about these combinations. All four methods of learning will lead to truth, he says, and there is virtue in both deontology and teleology. Even in the area of faith, a facet that distinguished him from his contemporaries, Scotty makes no claims. His point was structural. Right and wrong are determined by the intersection of our methods of learning and our options for applying that knowledge. Question 6. Apply an historical Christian heresy to modern society, using a combination of biographical information and a specific reference to current events. Marcion, a Roman official who lived in the 2nd century, believed that the God of the Jews was separate and distinct from Jesus Christ. For him, the Old Testament's God was vicious and cruel, while the God represented by Jesus was loving and caring. Marcion was so committed to separating the deity of Christianity away from Judaism that his followers only accepted the letters of Paul and an edited version of Luke's Gospel as Scripture. The distinction between the Old Testament God of Judgment and the New Testament God of Forgiveness is understood in the whole of Christianity through the Trinity. In this case, God the Father and God the Son. For Marcion, whose movement spread from Rome and remained influential for 200 years, the characteristic traits bore no familial relationship. It was to his political advantage to urge a separatist point of view. The development of the Nicene Creed and the Council at Constantinople is testimony of the success Marcion was having. This 4th century document marked the end of formal Marcionism. However, traces of his separatism still exist today. While anti-Semitism is often twinged with traces of legitimate Marcionism, the more common appearance of this separatism has recently appeared in inverse form in fundamentalist Christianity. In the quest for a return to a rigid moral code, many fundamentalist Christians have emphasized the judgment of the Old Testament God at the expense of New Testament views. Thus, we are encountering inverse Marcionism. 
The best example I've seen recently came during the 1988 Democratic Convention in Atlanta. Pro-life groups protesting the pending nomination of Michael Dukakis descended upon the city in an effort to squeeze local abortion clinics out of business. One such group, identifying itself as Operation Rescue, made fascinating comments to the evening news one night. Parenthetically, I'm sorry, but I don't now recall whether the speaker was Reverend Tucci or Reverend Mahoney, but I believe it was the latter. For our purposes, I'll simply identify this speaker as Operation Rescue, since he was acting as a spokesman. A reporter asked Operation Rescue about the group's religious orientation, which he confirmed. Being a minister, the point was obvious. Then the reporter asked the reverend to reconcile, if he could, the hateful and sometimes violent acts of his followers with Jesus' admonitions that we love one another, turn the other cheek, and not cast stones unless we first are sinless. Operation Rescue's response... Jesus wasn't addressing the abortion issue because abortion wasn't an issue in his day. However, if Jesus were here, witnessing the brutal slaughter of the unborn children, etc., etc., then he surely would side with us in our effort to shut down these abortionists. The reporter briefly followed up by asking whether Jesus wouldn't regard Operation Rescue as a group of zealots. The answer was similar to the first. The heresy here is the denial of the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, surely an ordained minister would not openly deny the Trinity. On the other hand, Operation Rescue clearly denies Jesus the status of a necessary being, which is the substantive nature of God. A necessary being, as defined by St. Anselm and others since, is omniscient and omnipresent in addition to being omnipotent. Jesus, as God, knows everything. The Bible, as divinely inspired and fallible document, encompasses everything. It is not possible as a Christian to believe that the commandments of Christ can, in any manner, fail to apply in all situations, in all centuries. To be a Christian is to accept that Jesus, as God, knew exactly what he was doing and saying. The heresy here is inverse Marcionism, because rather than siding with the New Testament against the Old, Groups like Operation Rescue side with the Old Testament law and disregard New Testament teaching whenever it's convenient. By this means, thou shalt not kill totally supersedes let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Also, much like Marcion, this heresy serves Operation Rescue's political goals. When beneficial, they can embrace the teachings of Jesus. When detrimental, well, Jesus didn't live in the 20th century, is the reply that limits the debate to Old Testament law. Marcion was rejected by proper Christianity because the Church recognized the value of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Believers in the 4th century recognized that the promise of a Messiah gave the life and death of Christ a primordial meaning. In the 20th century, Christians must affirm that any approach to Old Testament law with a disregard for the teachings of Christ, is misguided. Whatever Christians may think about pro-life and similar movements, true believers know that God's will won't be done if notions of forgiveness and redemption aren't included in the debate. Otherwise, inverse Marcionism will continue to flourish. Capital A hyphen period. Then, attach the notch from B4 into A1 with the corners facing outward. 
30 Some assembly required, a neo-surrealist forsaking a habit for Lent.